Travolta talk shows is back. Unleashed, unabridged, uncensored, and unbelievable. Only on Sputnik Radio. Listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. Welcome to the mother of all talk shows, the fastest growing show on the planet. It's the Open University of the airwaves. It's the College of Knowledge. There are no tuition fees and you are positively encouraged to speak back to the teacher. In this Twixmas edition, between Christmas and New Year, we'll be looking back at the year that was, looking forward at the year that might be. What will be the fate of Donald J. Trump? Will the Democrats pick the waxwork Joe Biden? or the only man who can melt Donald Trump, the orange man, Bernie Sanders. And who will win the Labour leadership donkey derby? I have predictions on all of these things, as you would expect. And speaking of Donald Trump, we'll be talking to the man that resigned from Newsweek in protest at fake news. We'll be looking forward to the great international events, including those across the water, 29 miles away in France, that absolutely everybody else is ignoring. The 59th act of the Yellow Vests and the Great General Strike. But this is a radio show with a difference. It's radio with pictures. So fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. George Galloway. This is Radio Sputnik. This is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet and courtesy of SputnikNews.com. We're on FM radio in Washington, D.C. area, 105.5. Other magic numbers there. We're on AM radio across the United States from sea to shining sea. And, of course, this being a radio show with pictures, you can also watch us. If you're watching on Facebook, as the biggest number of you are, please share, share, and share, because we want to reach that magic number of one million viewers and listeners, in whole or in part, just as quickly as possible. We are now consistently turning in viewing audiences, viewing alone, of in excess of half a million viewers a week. We've no idea how many people are listening. I used to use the rubric that as many people are listening as are watching, but I just pulled that one out of my hat because we literally don't know. So I'm looking for a new yardstick. When we reach 
750,000 views, I'll declare we've reached an audience of 1 million. So thanks to all of you who've made that possible. You can also watch us, of course, on YouTube, on my YouTube page, on RT's YouTube page. You can watch it on Facebook, on my page, on RT's multiple platforms across the world. You can even watch it on my Twitter feed, which an astounding number of people did last week, more than double the number the week before. You can call us, you can tweet us, you can even email us, and the details will be coming up on the screen throughout the course of the show. Now, as I alluded uh, in the introductory remarks just a moment or two ago, we touch on not just the big issues of the day, but the issues that are not issues, but ought to be issues. And one of those is now taking place again in Paris this weekend, in France indeed, throughout the French Republic. 59 weeks, hundreds of thousands of people have been on the streets of France. They have been gassed, bludgeoned, bullets, rubber bullets. People have lost their eyes, lost their hands, lost their fingers in the ferocious defense of uh, Macron, the Bourbon president of France. The police and the riot squads of France are notoriously violent, but they have not intimidated the great people of the French Republic. So, vive la France, I say, for 2019, and may God give them success in 2020. It's a good time to look back for a minute or two about the year we've had. On this side of the pond, the biggest event, of course, is the British general election, which uh, ended up with a Tory landslide majority based on the vagaries of our electoral system, no doubt. The Tory vote actually only went up 1%, and Jeremy Corbyn still polled more votes than his predecessor, his predecessor, and his predecessor on the final time of asking. That's Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, and Ed Miliband. Um, Corbyn got more votes than any of those. Uh, he lost, of course. And because of our electoral system, he lost big in terms of parliamentary seats. And it is a big defeat in terms of the cultural seismic shift behind the red wall, as they say, in the Midlands of England. The Midlands, the Northeast, the Northwest, West Wales, South Wales, Labour's position is increasingly parlous for many reasons, the greatest of which was Brexit. If Jeremy Corbyn, the same man as fought in 2017 and won a remarkable score for Labour, 40% of the vote, the biggest increase in the Labour vote since Clement Attlee in 1945. Same leader, a manifesto of left-wing policies. In 2019, it failed. In 2017, it did fantastically well. What's the X factor. What's the difference? The difference, of course, is Brexit. If uh, Jeremy Corbyn had told the Blairite ramp around him, no, we're running in the 2019 election on exactly the same Brexit policy 
as we fought on in 2017 and did so well, namely that we accept and respect the result of the Brexit referendum. If you elect us, we will refashion our relationship with the European Union in our own image, of course, as would be our right as the government of an independent Britain. But he did not do so. He capitulated instead to the uh, people who are now rubbishing him from a great height, the people who are effectively declaring him and his friends uh, as non-persons, effectively seeking to airbrush out of Labour history. And I predict that they will succeed. You know, I like predictions. Here's my prediction. The next Labour leader will be Sir Keir Starmer. The left of the Labour Party doesn't have a credible candidate. Rebecca Long Bailey is nobody's idea of a leader. She will not stand up to the rigors of the leadership hustings and the campaign trail. Ian Lavery, the miners' leader, the working class man of the North, pick him and the left might have a chance. But given that 22 Labour MPs have to nominate you, it's quite clear that Rebecca Long-Bailey and Ian Lavery cannot both be on the ballot paper, for there are not anything like 44 left-wing Labour MPs. So one of those has to go. If Labour is listening, Rebecca Long-Bailey will not be able to do it. So put your weight behind Ian Lavery, the miners' leader. But I don't believe that they will do that, because Ian Lavery knows that Swarfiga is not a Greek island. Ian Lavery talks in a way that the metropolitan, inner city, elite, liberal elite that the Labour Party membership has overwhelmingly become don't understand. Ian Lavery is a difficult man to understand if the limits of your purview is North London and the Liberati that live around you. Uh, but I am very clear about this. If you pick Rebecca Long-Bailey, you will lose, and you will lose to Sir Keir Starmer, the man who was the architect of Labour's downfall, the man who made it impossible for Corbyn to take a sensible Brexit stance. He'll be your next leader, and if he is, he will leave a gigantic, piece of political territory to his left, and he will set free hundreds of thousands of active socialists who will no longer credibly be able to be a member of a party led by a knight of the realm and a highly dubious record as the director of public prosecutions behind them, not least in the case of Mr. Julian Assange. Last year, of course, was another year of Calvary for Julian Assange, who ends this year behind the grim prison walls of Belmarsh, Britain's Guantanamo Bay, and we recall and remember him at all times and prepare for the public relations battle to come to stop his extradition to the United States of America. I predict that Britain will Brexit joyously uh, at the end of January next year. There'll be a lot more mugs 
like this on view. A lot more flags, a lot more bunting. Britain will experience a patriotic surge. The left, the labor movement, has to go with that. If you are seen as the anti-national, the anti-British, the pro-EU, the people who cannot stomach their own flag and their own nation and its culture and its traditions and its history, then you yourself will be history. I predict a big surge in buy British, build British, think British. We have an opportunity. Brexit is necessary but not sufficient as a condition for building the kind of Britain that I and many of you want to see. But we must Brexit. It is necessary. And we'll have a better Brexit Britain if we are seen to be a part of this new dawn for Britain. If we are the people crying to drag the people back into last year and the stasis of neither leaving nor staying in the European Union, we will be done for. And since I'm in the predictions business, let me predict that Bernie Sanders will win the Democratic Party's nomination for president. I've been confident about that, as you know, all throughout this year. And I'm more confident about it now as the year ends. And I'm absolutely clear of something else. If Bernie Sanders is not the Democratic Party candidate in that election, Donald Trump will win a clear victory in the Electoral College again next November. And a second term, Donald Trump will be unleashed upon America and upon the world. There are other elections, of course. The third election in a single year in Israel as Benjamin Netanyahu seeks to hang on to power so that he can stay out of prison. Yes, it's as basic as that. The only way that Netanyahu can stay out of the penitentiary is still to be the prime minister. He's already partly there. He just won a landslide victory in the Likud leadership election. 72% voted for Netanyahu. So he is still the man in pole position. Now, you may say that that doesn't speak too highly of the membership of the Likud. But there's enough of them to give him between 33 and 35 members in the Knesset. His rival, Benny Gantz, with roughly 35 to 37. It's all about who can make the coalition. And my money is on Netanyahu. So there's, there's a third prediction of the evening, that next year, at this time, Netanyahu will still be the leader of Israel. Which means, of course, there'll still be never-ending war. War against the Palestinians under Israeli occupation, war in the Lebanon, war and war by other means in the Lebanon, war in Syria, and war in Iraq. The conditions, the situation in the Arab world is unbelievably febrile. The situation in Iraq has slipped from bad to worse in the couple of weeks since we talked to Dr. Sami Ramadani about it. Well worth looking back at that interview now. The situation in Lebanon is uh, perhaps even more critical. Uh, the powers, the Western powers, 
and the Arab Gulf powers are determined to bring down the government in Lebanon unless they expel uh, the Lebanese Islamic re resistance movement Hezbollah from power and influence in the state. That will not work because Hezbollah represent probably more than half of all the people in Lebanon. So the situation there is looking grim. Now, the situation in the European Union after we leave is going to be grim too. Germany is almost certainly already in recession. France is printing money like Bilio to avoid going into recession. Italy is already in recession. Any breach in the trading arrangements between Britain and the European Union could be fatal for European economies. So again, I make a prediction that the European Union will settle with Boris Johnson in terms of the free trade agreement that he is looking for on favorable terms to Britain because the European economies cannot risk the slump if sales to Britain are interrupted. I've probably run out of predictions to make at this point, at least in the program. My prediction now is that you're in for a wonderful show. We have three top flight guests here on the last mother of all talk shows of 2019. We've even got a poll. If there was a fox in your hen house, would you A, kill it with a baseball bat, B, chase it on horseback, I think that's supposed to say, or C, strangle it with a kimono. This is the reference, of course, to a famous Queen's counsel, Julian Mon, who literally battered a trapped fox to death, battered its brains out with a baseball bat. That's notable for a number of reasons. First of all, the said Queen's Council was wearing his wife's kimono at the time. Secondly, this man drips with liberalism and greenness. He is, I understand, a supporter of the Green Party. He is an idol of the liber liberal chattering classes. And he was Mr. Anti-Brexit. He fought several highly remunerative legal battles to try and stop Brexit in the last 12 months or more. And he's the kind of man who not only beats a fox's brains out with a baseball bat whilst wearing his wife's kimono, but he tweets about it in triumphalist terms. So if there was a fox in your hen house, would you A, kill it with a baseball bat, B, chase it on horseback, C, strangle it with your kimono? You can vote now on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Now, I'm pleased to say that we are joined after this break by Katie Halper, writer and host of the Katie Halper Show, on her predictions for the US in the coming year. Stay tuned. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. By any means necessary is your guide to the movement and efforts shaping the world around us from mass incarceration. No longer am I interested in or concerned with prison reform. I am interested only in the eradication of prisons. 
to the battle between police and water protectors. It was a pretty punishing disregard for the sanctity of human life that unleashing water cannons on peaceful, prayerful water protectors. From efforts to protect the environment. The climate movement is ready to, with plenty of opposition research and force and strength, along with, you know, the right of both science and morality to fight them on this. To the movement for black lives. When I first saw the Michael Brown video and I saw that it clearly contradicted the narrative put forth uh, by the Ferguson Police Department and by police supporters in general, three words came to mind. Color me shocked. Stay tuned to By Any Means Necessary, five days a week here on Radio Sputnik. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. We are talking... 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. Only on Sputnik Radio. Well, another day, another killing spree in the United States. Just hearing that at least two people have been killed in a church shooting in Texas. It's believed one more person has been critically injured during the incident at the West Freeway Church of Christ in White Settlement in Texas. The suspected shooter is believed to be one of those three people. One person died at the scene of the shooting while another died en route to a hospital. This follows an horrific attack on Hanukkah on a rabbi's house in New York the day before, in which, again, multiple people were killed and injured by stabbing in that uh, case. Uh, sorry to put a damper on it, because I'm joined by my favorite American broadcaster, Katie Halper, author, writer and host of the Katie Halper Show. Katie, welcome uh, to the show. Let's start with that miserable, melancholy news, if we may. Uh, it's not getting any better in America, is it? Violent mass killings. The one in New York uh, that I was still recoiling in horror from before learning about this one in Texas. Um, it's a banal question, but do you go around worrying about your personal safety as a normal person in the United States? I don't. Um, I think maybe as a matter of kind of ironically enough, survival, like mental, it's a self-defense mechanism probably, because if I thought about it, I'd be pretty like debilitated by fear. Um, rationally, when I think about it, I realize that it, this is a scary place to live in terms of gun violence in this country. Um, but no, I really don't walk around thinking about it, but maybe I should. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll think about it for you. I'll be praying. Okay. I'll be praying for you. Now, let's look ahead uh, to 2020, 2020 vision uh, in advance. Uh, what's going to happen, first of all, in the impeachment process against Donald Trump? This is a most bizarre situation. Uh, the House of Representatives impeached him, but they didn't communicate that to the Senate, so there can be no trial 
uh, of Donald Trump. So he's in what we Roman Catholics call uh, a kind of limbo. Uh, neither, neither one thing nor the other. Is that how you see it? Don't you guys call it purgatory? Yes, purgatory, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, oh, very quickly, I just want to announce I have a new show, just to give a very quick plug, because I think your viewers and listeners will want to hear about it. It's called uh, Useful Idiots. It's on the Rolling, it's a Rolling Stone podcast, and it's with my co-host, Matt Taibbi. Um, oh, I definitely want to see that. Where, yeah, where, where do I find that? It's on YouTube and wherever you get your podcast. So, okay, you know, brilliant. iTunes, Stitcher, brilliant. all that. Uh, but it's video, the video is on YouTube. And actually, it's relevant because Matt has been one of the biggest critics of impeachment. There have been a few people. And, you know, what's really ironic, and this happens a lot in U.S. politics, is I think that the people who are most attached to identifying as Democrats and, you know, vote blue um, and have a real kind of like personal identity bound um, enmeshed with being a Democrat, they're often kind of can't see because they're not as rational, I think, what would be good for resisting Trump, whereas people like me, of course, I'm, I'm biased, but I'm I find Trump reprehensible. I think he's awful. But I also think that there are ways we can resist him that are more effective and then are more moral. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we heard Nancy Pelosi defend not impeaching Bush, even though um, he had, she knew, she said, because she was on the Intelligence Committee, she knew he had misrepresented, i.e. lied, about the WMDs. And to me, that was such a, a significant moment, and it was such a great kind of symbol of what's wrong with the Democrats. And, you know, there are ways you could go after Trump. There's, there's, there's a question of, there are two separate but related issues, which is the strategic value and then the moral value. Clearly, I think this is not the moral the most pressing moral issue. And it's so typical that, you know, the Ukraine conversation, which this is what the impeachment basically hinges on, um, it's so amazing that that story in itself requires looking into the corrupt nepotism of Joe Biden, um, which I think, like, the Dems are just okay with, I guess. But I think that it reads to other people as, as real hypocrisy. Um, and, you know, I, I want to resist Trump for, uh, you know, his trying to help overthrow the government in Venezuela um, for arming Saudi Arabia. That's what's important, I think. That's the moral um, priority and the urgency. And that's, you know, the thing with the Russia and Ukraine stuff is that it doesn't move the needle in any way that hurts Trump. I think what happens is that people who are kind of the Obama to Trump voters who we could win back, they don't care about this. It doesn't affect them. And people who stay at home who are, you know, who don't like Trump but weren't motivated enough to get out of the House, they don't care about this either. Um, so you have a very kind of insulated, insular, out-of-touch group of people who are constantly saying the walls are closing in on Trump. This is the, the smoking gun. And they've been saying that for years, and it hasn't happened. And now, yes, he has been impeached. And then, no, but as he said, no trial. And I think Trump will use this also to his advantage. You know, he will will spin this as another victory for him. He'll him, for himself. He'll say that they didn't have the evidence to uh, to convict him um, uh, in and, a trial. And, and and he's raising record amounts of money uh, on yeah. the on the back of it. I mean, truly right. gargantuan sums are flowing in. So clearly, yeah. the the people with money in the United States, uh, the people who are benefiting from this extraordinary stock market boom uh, that he has presided over, however long that lasts, 
they are predicting with their donations that Trump is going to still be around. Uh, and therefore, somebody's wrong. Either Nancy Pelosi and her gang uh, have called this right, or they've called it so horrifically wrong uh, that the Democrats are going down uh, to another victory, which leads me uh, to the Democratic uh, primary. Um, I have a strong feeling now that Bernie Sanders is going to win the Democratic Party nomination, despite all the efforts and the saboteurs in his right. own ranks. What's your view on that? I mean, it's hard. I don't want to jinx it. And I get so excited saying it, but I think it could be true. I mean, I used to think, and there's still some of this, that there are people in the Democratic Party, high-ranking people, apparatchiks, um, who would rather Bernie lose the primary and someone win the primary who loses to Trump yeah. than Bernie win both. Yeah. Um, but those people need to be, you know, marginalized and ignored and put in their place. Uh, you do. We have seen a weird shift among some people. There's some examples of, you know, people on MSNBC um, praising Sanders. I mean, Al Sharpton did this the other day. Uh, also, there is an article by Sidney Ember, and I wrote an article myself on Sidney Ember's anti-Bernie bias, and even she wrote an article about how he's tough to, to beat. Uh, of course, there are little digs. Yeah. yeah, there are little digs incorporated into that. Um, sure, but, but they're, I, they're, now, they're now recognizing these polls in which yeah. they, they literally blank out his name. They I tell know. you who was first and who was third, third. but not There's who no was second. second. Right, uh, exactly, and I actually the, tweeted about this. It's on my Twitter. It's my most recent tweet. Uh, I can pin it so that people can find it. But I yeah. tweeted about it, and I, I said, what do people think of this pro-media Sanders coverage? And there were a couple different responses. Um, and one was that they just have to finally deal with the fact that he's doing very well. And then another one is that it's a trick. It's like some kind of it's the calm before the storm. A lot of people said that. Um, and I think that it could be both. It could, could be a combination. I get the sense that maybe um, they're realizing that Biden would just do terribly in a, in a, a debate with Trump. Uh, that he would kind of ruthlessly mock Biden's cognitive skills. Um, and then maybe they are realizing that, you know, if they want to defeat Trump, this is the way to go, um, which is clear to anyone, I think, who's, who follows politics and is kind of honest or is able to separate their personal feelings and maybe their some of their self-interest from um, the larger political landscape. Uh, because, you know, for so many reasons, uh, Bernie is the most electable against Trump. Um, ranging from his how motivated and excited his base is, um, how much people who like him like absolutely love him and will come out and vote, uh, how much his the young people young voters love him, how he did better in the Rust Belt uh, than Hillary Clinton did, for instance, and how he's popular there. I mean, you have people who a lot of people will say, "Oh, he'll never win because he's a socialist," but I know people who are. Like in upstate New York, where I spend some time, I know people who are very kind of right wing and populist and they don't like socialism, but they also get that this guy is honest. Like there's a real consensus about Sanders honesty. And I think that really resonates with people. And so we saw, for instance, in um, the election between John McCain and uh, Barack Obama, there were people who did vote for Obama, even though they were, I mean, they, there's this apocryphal, I don't know if it's a real story, but people saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to vote for the N-word, 
which I bring this up because it's a pr pretty distasteful, disturbing example. But the point is that people got over or were willing to vote despite their racism for Obama. And I think there are people who are willing to vote despite their um, discomfort with uh, with the term socialist. I also think what happened is that people kind of wasted their, their they blew their wad on trying to make Obama look like a socialist. And Obama was fairly popular. And so I think that kind of destigmatized the word. Uh, and I think, of course, young people don't care about that. Very interesting, um, uh, indeed. Uh, Katie, uh, the N-word is uh, one thing. What about the J-word? It's high oh. time, isn't it, that America had its first Jewish president? Bernie yeah, Sanders yeah, is that potential first Jewish president. And yet yeah. there are people trying to persuade others that America's first Jewish president is in fact an anti-Semite. Tell us I about know. that. I mean, and actually, I really want to have you on my show. We can talk about this after I'll email you because yeah, sure. I'd love to talk with you about the British elections and how much that term was weaponized. Yeah. But um, or that idea. I mean, I think that People are trying to call him a self-loathing Jew. Um, and I actually wrote a piece about this in Jacobin, about how Sanders does represent a very rich, um, that sounds not rich like wealthy, but a, a very... Um, yeah, absolutely. Rich. It's a rich, a rich seam. Of, you know, yeah. I, I spent much of my life, Katie, imagining that if someone uh, was a left-wing person on my wavelength in America, they were almost certainly going to be Jewish. Uh, that, okay. that goes back uh, a century uh, yeah. or more. Uh, yeah. And it's still true today, although many Jews in America have moved to the right, it's still the case that yeah. most of my best icons on the American left are Jewish. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's a really rich tradition of, of leftism and, you know, from ranging from people like Bernie Sanders to Noam Chomsky. And I, I you know, unfortunately, I think APAC gives a very unrepresentative view of what Jew, being Jewish means. Um, but this is a really interesting thing because, of course, uh, you have all these people who talk about identity um, and somehow when they Sanders critics, when they talk about identity, somehow his Jewish identity doesn't come up or people try to claim that he's not really Jewish because he's not religious, which is a, a totally different issue. There are tons of Jews who are not religious. I'm one of them. Um, and I have a very strong Jewish identity, but I'm not religious. Um, I'm secular and that's a tradition. But yeah, I think what they're going to try to do is call him a self-loathing Jew or point to the fact that he has people on his you know, who are surrogates or involved in the campaign, who they like to claim um, are anti-Semitic, and they're not. I think one of the greatest things is hearing um, criticism towards Israel. It's kind of ironic, but also logical, like we were saying, given this rich social justice tradition, um, that, you know, the most critical voice and most compassionate voice towards Palestinians, and by that I mean the person who actually, you know, sees Palestinians as human beings with human, deserving of human rights, is a Jewish guy. Um, yeah, and I think that that's pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, I think that honestly, I don't, I'm hoping it won't work because I think he's so unabashed and so unapologetic about his politics and about his identity, um, that I just think that it, it, 
it works among like a very elite crowd of people, and I think the rest of the world doesn't really care about it. You know, that's, that's a fine. very key point that you've just made. You you said he's so unabashed, he's yeah. so enthusiastic about his politics. Right. And that is a key difference. We'll talk about this when I come on your yeah. show. That's Let's a key difference with Jeremy Corbyn, you see. Right. He ran right. away from this issue, uh, capitulated, surrendered, threw his friends right. under a bus. But right. Sanders is not doing that. He's no. on the front foot, uh, ready yeah. to take on all comers. He knows that uh, it's now or never. Uh, but yeah. let's contemplate for a moment the unthinkable. The Democrats pick Joe Biden instead, a man who looks for all the world to me like a waxwork uh, dummy. I feel he's going to melt one night in front of the TV lights. Yeah, uh, well, his eye a, already exploded. His eye exploded. His teeth, yeah. his teeth shot out across the studio floor. I don't mean to mock, but that's what I saw with my own eyes. If they do, then Donald Trump will triumph. Uh, as sure as yeah. eggs are eggs, uh, he's, going to, he's going to take a beating from Donald yeah. Trump, don't you think? Yeah, I do. I mean, it's interesting because I I'm someone who I'm pretty honest about my politics. Everyone knows that I'm a huge Bernie Sanders fan. And but I also think that I'm able to distinguish between the person whose politics I like and a person who's electable. And to be honest, to be fair, I at the beginning of this primary, I thought there were two people who could beat Trump, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. And I was obviously I was able to distinguish between electability and and my own preference because I don't like Biden at all. But what's it, then, as the primary went on, it wasn't the his distasteful politics, which I, I find repulsive. But it was what, in terms of electability, I think what it was is that he I, just comes across as not with it. He comes across as, and it's not an ageist thing because Bernie Sanders is a year or two older than him, and he's totally you know with it. I think Biden has just kind of lost it, and I think that Trump will be absolutely merciless with him. Um, He'll impersonate him. He'll uh, make fun of him. And yeah, Biden is just like, I mean, we're used to him saying these gaffes, whether they're really gaffes or they're intentional. We're used to those things. But the way he kind of just stalls and can't remember his website, that's something that I think people find troubling. And it's also one of the things that makes me think that maybe if this shift in media coverage is that it's genuine, then maybe it's because people realize that Biden really can't beat Trump and they're finally getting behind the person who can. Um, so you have people, the New York Times and MSNBC kind of shifting their, uh, changing their tune. Now, again, it could be possible that this is the quiet before the storm, which is what a lot of people uh, are saying. And that's how they responded to my Twitter query. But, um, no, I, I, I now, I really think that Sanders is the only one who can beat Trump. I think that he has the, he appeals to people who don't believe in the political system. He, um, you know, he and Trump both speak to people who are, in pain. Now, Trump is a con man and he speaks to them um, in a dishonest yeah. way. He's selling them snake oil. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's a really dangerous thing where people compare them to each other as if they're similar. Now, what they don't realize is they're actually making an electability argument for Sanders, because what Sanders does is he re he appeals to. I mean, the whole Bernie Brown myth is totally dead. They can't use that demographic identity-based argument, because unfortunately for them, Sanders' campaign is less male and less white than any other of the candidates, his base of support. Um, but I think that what we see is that Sanders and Trump both speak to angry people, 
And that's where they overlap, sure. But the key difference is that Trump says, blame Mexicans and Muslims. And Sanders says, don't blame Mexicans and Muslims. Blame, you know, corporate greed and structural inequality. And and when people don't get what how significant that difference is, it shows that they're really not able to see politics clearly. And um, they have some weird aesthetic um, issue with Sanders and, and Trump and not a and policy-based one. Well, uh, Katie, I've got to tell you, there's nobody in public life has a better record or prediction than me. And before you came on, I predicted that Bernie Sanders is going to be the Democratic Party nominee. Okay. Thank you very much indeed Thank for you. joining us. Thanks for your time. The best of luck with Thank your you. new show. I hope you gain many more viewers as a result of Thank your you. appearance this evening. Katie Halper, yeah. thank you for joining us. Let's take a break. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for the regular segment called Veterans for Peace, where we focus on the contemporary issues of war and peace that affect veterans, their families, the country, and the world as a whole. Veterans for Peace President Jerry Condon joins the show every Thursday. Hear about this and more every Thursday right here on Radio Sputnik. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway. The world is our classroom. And you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. Okay, your calls, please. 02077 282255. That's in the UK. 02077 282255. If you're in the US, 001-757-744. 4480. You can also tweet us at George Galloway, at RTUK News, and a surprise sensation, largely because Andrew Neil, the legendary uh, BBC political pundit, retweeted something from Gigi Motes. We've also got a Twitter feed by that name. So that's at George Galloway, at RTUK News, at Gigi Motes. And you can also uh, email us. Uh, I also have the interim results of the poll. If there was a fox in your hen house, would you A, kill it with a baseball bat? 30%. Chase it on horseback? 39%. Strangle it with a kimono? 29%. As you just make the point that the fox was not in the hen house and could not have got in to the hen house. The fox was actually trapped in wire. It was entirely helpless when the liberal icon Julian Mon QC beat its brains out. Emails. Whilst many MPs were living comfortably on a handsome salary, millions of people in Britain were suffering and thousands dying from Tory policies. Instead of attacking the Tories, they attacked their own party. Now they blame the left for a defeat they spent over three years helping to orchestrate. Now they're trying to put the final boot into anyone with a whiff of socialism about them. Centrism is a cancer within the Labour Party, and you don't compromise with cancer, you cut it out. Time to fight back. Time to fight for a post-Brexit Britain in the interests of all the working class. That's from 
John, and uh, this one from Adam, uh, says, given Jeremy would be considered center-left in most of Europe, where have the left gone in the UK? Have they been fractured by ideological divides imposed, suggested, or created by elites in order to preserve the conservative right? Is this the result of establishment control of media for the past few decades, allowing a kind of pro-establishment propaganda to have permeated the public consciousness? An example of which being, where are the mainstream media in reporting on the 77th Brigade propaganda campaign against the democratic rights of the British people in recent years? Sorry to bombard you with so much at once, but I feel these issues connect as one. And Will in Singapore says compliments of the season or Salamat Hari Natal in the language of your beloved. Since you have your prediction hat on, give us a couple more. Given the Rangers result in the old firm today, oh dear, how do you see the season ending? And also what will happen with that major data breach of New Year honorees addresses? We love you over here in Singapore. Your tea is getting cold, by the way. Thank you so much, Will. Very, very kind of you. Uh, I could have predicted the Rangers' uh, victory over Celtic today after about 10 minutes. In fact, I did uh, at about 20 minutes say Celtic are very much second best today. And I would have predicted that Rangers would win uh, somewhere between the 10th minute and the 20th minute. I don't think it will change the course of the season. I think that Celtic will still emerge victorious, but it definitely makes the league much more interesting. Social media, people are saying hello from the islands of Gozo in Malta. I went on a holiday once to Gozo in Malta. Pakistan, New York, Lancashire, South Africa, Melbourne, Paisley, and Jordan. And Jay Burns says, I'd like Jeremy to stay, but if he wants to go, I hope Ian Lavery stands. And Malpa2345 says, I heard the EU want an extension to Brexit now. Is this true? Uh, no, they'll do a quick deal. It'll be all over by this time next year. Bashiro says, to all the Brexiteers, your messiah, Boris the Clown, has started selling off the NHS. Private firms invited to run NHS services with cancer and kids' treatments on sale. I have no idea what that means, Bashiro, except the NHS is being, being sold off to private companies like Virgin Medical uh, over the last 20 years, much of which Labour was in power. Westley Mank says, Gigi, you are wrong. I watched the BBC and there's no mention of what you speak. I presume he's being ironic. Jane Quinn says, George Galloway, are you a gatekeeper? Please answer the question honestly. I don't really know what you mean by that, Jane. Why don't you give me a call? 02077 982 255. A gatekeeper. That sounds vaguely agricultural to me. Andrew Marrero says 2019 wasn't a bad year. It was decent. And Anthony Gibbs says British politics reminds me of Game of Thrones. They do not fight fair and they have no honour. I've never seen Game of Thrones. Uh, Mayasnik Seranovich says, George, stop pretending that you're fighting injustice. You're not. You just mean 
that you think Julian should get away with what he did and the government doesn't. Tell you what, Miasnik, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. Come and justify what you've just written to me. 02077-982-255. Come on, you gutless coward. Chris Matthews says, Long Bailey, more like Rebecca Wrong Daily. I've got nothing against Rebecca Long Bailey, and I have nothing bad to say about her. All I say about her is she's not a leader. Maybe one day she will be, but I doubt that. She's, to me, nothing. And you can't win with nothing. Where's the beef? And I don't think she has the beef. Chrissy says, one quarter of those voting for Trump in 2016 were voting against Hillary and angry Bernie voters. Many just didn't show up. If Bernie wins the primaries, Trump doesn't stand a chance. And Mendora says, Keir Starmer will destroy the Labour Party as his leadership will cement the party's mutation into the Liberal Democrats. Indeed, they might well merge. Why would there be a need for both of them? Eddie says, corruption of the highest good is the greatest evil. Trump is the cancer. Bernie, the great healer, because his heart and passion is for the well-being of humanity. And uh, Nick to the core, 74. Galloway in absolutely fine form here. Talking truth to power always has my respect. Thank you, Nick. And another email. Great joy to hear about the increase in audience. Long live hashtag the moats. In your jam-packed, interesting schedule, could you please insert Julian Assange? I feel the momentum is picking up and time is ticking badly, says Wilson. Well, I did, uh, of course, raise the issue of Julian uh, in my introductory remarks, in my monologue, and uh, you can count on us to continue to do so. Let's take uh, a call from Jared in Pennsylvania, USA. Jared, welcome back. Uh, nice to be with you, George. Thank you, sir. Um, uh, happy, um, uh, Merry Christmas, uh, late Christmas, and uh, hopefully this is going to be a very good New Year, uh, God willing. God willing, I hope um, so. Uh, one, one little correction that um, um, uh, Katie Halper said, um, Bernie is um, actually Jewish, like, Judy, like he practices Judaism, at least that's what, yes, that's, that's what um, I've read from uh, sources. He's just not actively religious, if you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. He, he wouldn't describe so. himself, I think, as secular in the way that Katie did. Uh, he still uh, observes, I think, uh, but he, he's not super active on the religious front, but he is yeah. definitely Jewish. Go ahead. De definitely. Um, I want to talk maybe about what I think... Um, is going to happen next year in uh, 2020 with the new year, and maybe uh, get your thoughts about what, what could happen. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I predict that Bernie's probably going to win the nomination, um, and then the Democrats are going to sabotage it with um, a third-party run, and then Trump will win in uh, 2020. Who would that be? Who would the third play? party be? I'm not 100% sure. Have we lost Jared? Um, I can no longer hear him. Can you hear me now? I think we may have lost Hello? him. Look, if there was a fox in your hen house, would you A, kill it with a baseball bat, 31%, chase it on horseback, 40%, strangle with a kimono, 
29%. I can hear you, Chris, you but I could no longer hear Jared. Jared, are you can there? Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Continue. Can yeah, continue. <laughs> you think that a third um, party challenge will be made by the Democrat uh, uh, um, establishment? Who would that be and how would that be? I mean, honestly, uh, at this point, uh, I wouldn't be shocked if it was um, uh, probably... Um, Bloomberg, uh, maybe? Uh, no, no, actually, Klobuchar, Amy Klobuchar, I would not be shocked if she ran as a third-party spoiler. Tell us the about Minnesota, her. I don't think many of us know her over here. She's a Minnesota senator. She's uh, basically... Um, uh, your equivalent of um, uh, who, who is the worst female labor politician? <laughs> the, I guess um, Jess Phillips. Maybe Thornberry? you're thinking of. Maybe you're thinking Jess, of Jess, Jess Phillips. Phillips. Yes. Yeah, Jess Phillips. Yeah, imagine Jess Phillips, but she um, Midwestern <laughs> without with without the laughs poking. with a Fargo yeah, with a Fargo accent. The Fargo accent. <laughs> you can't have. You can't have Medicare for all. You can't have any of this stuff. <laughs> That's basically what she runs on. Yeah. Um, apparently, she's actually pretty popular in Minnesota. I don't know why, but um, I, think, I think they would do that, honestly. And um, I also believe Labor is going to nominate a centrist candidate, and um, it'll continue their downward spiral. And um, what else? Uh, uh, I predict also the identitarian politics of the um, the social justice uh, warrior movement on the um, uh, uh, of of the, um, the so-called left. I, I call them faux progressives at this point. It's just gonna just go crazy at this point. I mean, we're already seeing that. Faux aggressives. That's yeah. what I call them. Listen, Jared, the, the line's breaking up. Uh, I'm grateful to you for that interesting call. You've taught us something I think we didn't know about the, the Jess Phillips of Minnesota. I must say the, the, uh, the, the mind uh, quivers uh, in anticipation of meeting uh, Minnesota's own Jess Phillips. But then I've seen Fargo and I've seen uh, Jess Phillips. Let me take some more of the uh, social media. Um, uh, in fact, I've read all the social media, so let me uh, say a few things about what's coming up in the second half of the show. Tariq Haddad uh, has become uh, an overnight sensation. I must say, I had no idea he even existed when he was a writer on the magazine Newsweek. But the very act of resigning from it and the way in which he did, the powerful argument that he deployed in justifying his resignation from Newsweek was one of the highlights of 2019. So he is one of my new heroes. His name is Tariq Haddad, and he resigned from a top position at Newsweek magazine, one of the biggest, if not the biggest selling magazines in the world, in protest at fake news in protest at their refusal to allow him to properly report information that he had amassed that proved beyond any contradiction that the entire Duma affair, the chemical weapons affair, 
which led to a, a blizzard of cruise missiles showering down on Syria and almost led the world to war was all based on a giant hoax. And that the information that Tariq Haddad had put together proved this, and Newsweek refused to run it. Just think about that. George Wishart says, Scottish freedom from EU disaster. I'm not sure quite what that means, Georgie. Give me a call and talk about it. Yellow Fever says, exactly, George. The Labour Party have been the major culprit when it comes to selling off the NHS under the covers. Many of these MPs made millions in the process. And Jeff Goldblum says, two of my best friends are a Palestinian Muslim and a Russian Jew, and I come from a Catholic family. See, guys, we can do this. Mark says, we still had a chance after Bernie was cheated in 2016 with Dr. Jill Stein, who is objectively much better on policy than Bernie. He even took some ideas for, from her this time, but without giving credit. Well, I supported Dr. Jill Stein uh, without hesitation throughout last year, uh, the last uh, presidential election. George, I see from Twitter that you're a big football fan. What's your opinion of VAR? <laughs> Have you a, a prediction about its future? It seems to me that the premiership officials are doing their best to get it scrapped. That's from Tony in Leicester. It's a bit off topic, but let me just say that I, I think these uh, offside decisions, goals being chalked off, uh, for highly dubious calculations of the minutest fractions uh, are wholly wrong and are robbing the game of much of its excitement and certainly many of its goals, two or three of them this weekend. You see, I was brought up on the basis that if you're level, you're not offside. And if you're level and there's any doubt, the striker gets the benefit of the doubt. VAR are definitely not doing that, and it's robbing the game of some of its uh, great excitement. Well, the first hour is by. The second and third hours beckon. I'm going to fill up my Union Jack cup of tea while we take a break and hear the news with Jamie Lowe. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. This is Dominic Carter, a political reporter in New York for Verizon Files TV News. This is Dr. Bill Honigman, Progressive Democrats of America, PDAmerica.org. Hey, everybody, my name is Tim Black of the Tim Black Show. This is Tom Luongo of Gold Coast and Guns. Hello, this is Benny Johnson. Hi, this is Juanita Broderick, author of You'd Better Put Some Ice on That. This is Jamal Thomas from the Progressive Soapbox. Hey, this is Raheem from D.C. This is Rachel Blevins, a correspondent with RT America, and you're listening to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. When I'm waking up in the morning and I'm looking for what's on the queue for today, I tune to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. The wokest radio show for your wokest AM. These guys are the best in the business and experts when it comes to policy. They're bringing you the top headlines with an angle that you won't see in the mainstream media. 
Paul Lines is the greatest show on the radio. I enjoy immensely talking with Lee and Garland. They always treat me uh, from either side with due respect, and it's a wonderful conversation. The best morning news show in America. Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. Lee and Garland speak truth to power from the depths of the swamp itself, right here on Radio Sputnik. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Sputnik News. Tens of thousands of residents and holidaymakers in the Australian state of Victoria have been told to evacuate amid worsening bushfire conditions. Officials say that temperatures of over 40 degrees Celsius, strong winds, thunderstorms and a change of wind direction means that tomorrow will be a day of extreme danger. More than 100 fires are continuing to burn across Australia. The biggest ones are ranging near the city of Sydney in New South Wales, where more than a quarter of a million people have signed a petition calling for the New Year's Eve fireworks to be cancelled and the money instead spent on fighting fires. At least five people have been stabbed at the house of a rabbi in New York State. The house in Monzi, north of New York City, was hosting a religious celebration when the attacker burst in. Police say the suspect fled but was later taken into custody. The motive was not immediately clear and one of the victims was stabbed at least six times. The attack came a day after New York City police officers said that they were stepping up patrols in heavily Jewish districts following a spate of anti-Semitic threats and attacks. A woman whose husband and two children drowned in a swimming pool at a Spanish resort is calling for further investigations into their deaths. Spanish police believe 52-year-old Gabriel Dia and his daughter Comfort, aged nine, and 16-year-old son died after getting out of their depth, but Olubunmi Dia said all three could swim and she believes there was a fault with the pool. Her lawyer says that she wants different engineers to look at it. The hotel operator Club La Costa World says her claims are directly at odds with the findings of the police report and that their exhaustive investigations have confirmed that the pool was working. The Spanish police said in a statement on Saturday that the incident on Christmas Eve was a tragic accident caused by the victim's lack of expertise in swimming. They said divers retrieved Comfort's swimming hat from the pool pump, but investigators had found nothing wrong with the pool and an autopsy of the bodies found that they died by drowning. Renowned Scottish author and artist Alastair Grey has died. The 85-year-old was known for novels such as Lanark and the award-winning Poor Things, which are both set in Glasgow where he was born. His public murals are visible across the city with further pieces on display at the V&A and at the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art. He died on Sunday at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital. His family said that he wanted to leave his body to science so that there would be no funeral. The online publication of the addresses of more than 1,000 of the UK's New Year's Honours list recipients was a complete disaster, a former, cabinet, a former Conservative cabinet minister claims. Ian Duncan Smith, who was knighted, said that ministers needed to ask very serious questions about how it had happened, while a former civil service chief called it a serious failure. 
Details of celebrities, senior police officers and politicians were released. The list of 1,097 honours recipients including Elton John and cricketer Ben Stokes was uploaded to an official website on Friday evening and removed on Saturday. Most of the entries in the spreadsheet included a full list of addresses including house numbers and postcodes. The Cabinet Office said that the document was uploaded to a website and was visible for about an hour. A rhino thought to be the oldest in the world has died in Tanzania, aged 57. Fausta, an eastern black rhino, was first sighted in the Nongoro crater in 1965 when she was three. She roamed the crater freely for more than 54 years, but health issues in her old age required her to spend her few final years receiving specialist care in a sanctuary. And finally, in what may be a world's first, a British transgender man has given birth. Reuben Sharp, aged 39, transitioned to a man 12 years ago, taking hormones which gave him facial hair, a deep voice and masculine features. Sharp and his 28-year-old partner, Jay, who identifies as neither male or female, were helped by a trans doctor and a trans sperm donor. After realising he wanted a child, Sharp visited his doctor and was told that it was possible. The wedding photographer who lives in Brighton took a break from his testosterone medicine so he could undergo fertility treatment. And that's the news here on Sputnik. I'm Jamie Lowe. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio. You're watching or listening to the mother of all talk shows coming to you from London, but speaking to you all over the world on multiple platforms, on FM and AM in the United States, online on SputnikNews.com, on Facebook, on YouTube, even on Twitter. And... Here's a tweet from Michael Gaughan. My prediction for 2020 is that there will be more dumb polls on the mother of all talk shows. Yuck. So you can't please all the people all of the time, but the poll uh, is running at 31% for the old baseball bat, 40% uh, the chasing on horseback, wearing a red jacket, presumably, 29% on strangling with a kimono might be dumb, but it's worth a laugh. You can vote on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. The Red, the Red Resistance says, I'll make a prediction for you. Bernie Sanders, whose family fled to the US from the Nazi persecution of Jewish families, will, pardon me, by the end of January, officially be proclaimed as anti-Semitic by the entirety of North American mainstream media. Let's hope not. Uh, responding to the poll, Attila says, chasing it on horseback in a kimono might not look too good. Well, chasing it with a top hat and a red coat, as uh, I think uh, Oscar Wilde said, the unspeakable in full pursuit of the uneatable. Joanne says, this impeachment is a forest. I think she means farce and only adds to Trump's popularity. The stock market in 2021 will collapse. And Bassam says, if elected president, do you think Sanders can make the Middle East a better place or a less unjust place if you want to be realistic? 
Uh, no, I'm afraid. And uh, Myasnik says, journalism is a crime when they publish state secrets. Not just a crime, it's a hostile act of war against the country concerned. I've already told you, Myasnik, if you have any guts, call me and justify this foul output of yours online. Chrissy says, Bernie's the only candidate who can beat Trump, but keep in mind, many Dems would much prefer Trump over Bernie. That was true, of course, here in Britain also. Now, as I uh, said earlier, Tariq Haddad, distinguished writer on Newsweek, one of the biggest selling magazines on the planet, has resigned from his very important position in international journalism in protest at fake news, or at least the refusal to publish real news, the real news that he himself had helped to uncover, principally about the uh, chemical weapons attack as was or wasn't at the site in Duma, which led the world closer to nuclear war between these superpowers than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm glad to say we've got Tariq Haddad online. Now, Tariq, uh, first of all, I metaphorically take my hat off to you. Uh, you're a hero uh, to me. Tell us what led to your decision. What <clears throat> led to your decision that this was a line uh, that they had crossed and you could not go with them? Sure, uh, and thank you for having me on the show. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to assume that your listeners and, and watchers will be fairly familiar with the kind of outline of the story, so I won't go into too much detail about that. But the line for me personally is, um, you know, when evidence started to, well, first of all, it was published by the Mail on Sunday. Um, Peter Hitchens wrote a story, and now he's, he's written several stories about these leaks. Um, it, particularly one letter was um, verified by Reuters journalists, uh, you know, about these leaks. So what, when I kind of took this to my editors and tried to write a story about, you know, the information contained within these leaks, uh, and I was, you know, uh, pushed back for doing so, that was that was the, the limit because, you know, for me, I understand, you know, sometimes news stories you know, if they're controversial, they can, you know, they need solid sources. But this is kind of the first time I've ever seen, in my experience as a reporter, where, um, you know, something that's been published in a reputable British newspaper, um, regardless of what you think of the politics of the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday, they still produce quality journalism. Um, you know, it's, it's that, that goes with that question. And then also Reuters, which is sort of the gold standard for journalism, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, if, if Reuters have verified this information and then, um, you know, I'm, I'm told that the information is not valid, then um, that was the line for me. And then did, they, did they say, Tarek, that the information wasn't valid or just not validated enough yet? Well, I think um, an interesting part of this whole debacle, I think, is that there's a very new trend in, in propaganda and, and in journalism in that... Uh, because the you know the industry has been shrinking, uh, more and more people are, are starting to rely on places like Bellingcat. Now, I'm sure many people will still believe that um, you know Bellingcat are this gung-ho team of investigative journalists that are you know solving crimes all across the world. But I don't think uh, 
many people do know and, and what they should know is that they're funded, you know, from dubious sources that are linked to US military interests. So essentially they are a propaganda arm of the US and the UK militaries. Uh, they, so what's happening is that you know, reporters like me that try to write certain stories that contradict the official narrative get told, no, well, Bellingcat have, have, have done this, this refutation. But uh, as I pointed out, and I, I um, encourage your readers and listeners to go to my website and read the full article where I've laid everything out. But, um, you know, it's, yeah, this trend of saying, um, you know, Bellingcat have, have done this, so it's, we won't touch it. I, in my, in you know, when this happened to me, I actually took apart the Bellingcat article that they sent to me, and I addressed every single point that was raised, uh, and kind of showed it how it wasn't, you know, a correct representation of what was going on and why it was still a valid news story. After after I'd done this, they didn't have any valid response for me. Really, it was just, oh, we'll discuss this in person, and then, you know, when I tried to discuss it, it was I was simply told sorry, but it's going to have to be a no. And I, that, um, you know, combined with a few other factors, which I'm happy to get into, um, you know, that's when I kind of discovered this is something corrupt going on. And did they uh, in any way react to your resignation? Did they know that it would become really quite a big issue? I'm bound to tell you, I don't often discuss <clears throat> what's in Newsweek, and <laughs> I haven't picked up a copy of it in many years. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, everyone's talking about Newsweek and Tariq Haddad and the Duma story now. Do, mm -hmm. do you think they, they properly appreciated the consequences of this? No, I don't think they did at all. And funnily enough, I mean... You know, I'm a, I'm a I'm a journalist. I want the journal. You know, I want journalism to thrive. I'm not. I wasn't trying to do this to sort of damage the reputation of journalism. Even though I am probably as critical of them as as anyone can be. Um, you know, I try to raise the fact that you know, listen, this information coming out about Syria is growing by the day. Um, I understand, kind of, it's it might be controversial to say certain things about the Syria. You know the narrative. But my, my experience has always been if the evidence I have is solid and I can back it up with good sources, which I can do in this case, I've never had any issues writing the story. I tried to discuss with my editors, you know, saying, I understand this is controversial, but the evidence is growing. If we don't discuss this, we're going to look stupid. Um, you know, and I, I, I did mention that in an email to my two editors, including um, the editor-in-chief in New York, Nancy Cooper, and my um, London bureau chief, uh, Laura Davis, I mentioned both of these things, you know, wrote both of these things. And it, what I actually got in, in response was a character attack of myself as a journalist. And, you know, it was, that was the moment they when tried I tried to, to shoot the messenger. Exactly. And anyone who's got experience of journalism or these types of stories knows that, you know, when the messenger is shot, as you say, and the facts ignored, and the facts are ignored, you know kind of who's who's telling the truth. Who's saying, calling the shots, literally. Uh, do you think if your name had been John Smith rather than Tariq Haddad that this would have had exactly the same outcome? Yeah, I, I think so. I don't think there was anything to do with my background involved in it. I mean, I'm British citizen. I've been living in the UK for about 20 years. Um, and, you know, I've, I've never had any issues with other reporting. In fact, my background, you know, my Arabic background, which I make no attempt to hide, is 
often been a useful thing for me in my journalism. You know, I, I'm, I'm not fluent, but I speak Arabic and that makes, you know, some things a lot, you know, gives me a certain advantage in journalism. Um, I think it's, it's, it's more of a wider issue that there is kind of a, a mainstream media wide cover up of this story. Um, and essentially, as I, I point out in my article, there is a very worrying trend, which may be known to people within the industry, but it was unknown to me. And I felt like it should be known to the wider public is that um, a large amount of journalists are um, directly linked to think tanks that operate, you know, that make a profit from going to war. Um, you know, think tanks like the Council on Foreign Relations and others like that. And so they're going to do fellowships in these in these think tanks and you know, all this information is public, and then they will come and, and um, work in newsrooms where they'll decide what information should or should not be presented to the public. Now, the editor that refused my story, uh, I demonstrated in my article that he's, you know, was a fellow at the European Council of Foreign Relations. Um, you know, there's certain different things in his history that show that, you know, he's got a clear conflict of interests because he's clearly been in an, in an environment where he's fostering relationships with people from the US State Department or other officials and politicians. And, you know, our job as journalists is to hold the government to account, which is, should be fairly obvious to say. If someone is, you know, directly being funded by the US State Department or, you know, think tanks of that nature, for me, I think, you know, that is the clear problem that's leading to this kind of whitewashing of this story. Well, uh, I <clears throat> the great Irish journalist Claude Coburn, uh, who coined the phrase, nothing is true until it's been officially denied, and mm -hmm. who characterized the proper relationship of a journalist to the power as, as the dog to the lamppost. But mm -hmm. in fact, most of what is still called the mass media, though the mass is thinning rather dramatically, uh, is uh, the, the dog is... Uh, urinating the other way uh, on their readers and viewers and listeners. And that's one of the reasons why uh, the so-called mainstream media is really not all that mainstream anymore. You mm -hmm. identify two clear uh, uh, conflicts of interest, and let me summarize them. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the Bellingcats and other such think tanks produce microwave-ready stories and refutations and that can be easily published or broadcast without costing the media house in uh, question uh, any money at all, because that's already been paid for by the US or the UK or other states. And the second is uh, that the media is without, they don't have an annual conference and decide, you know, what lines to take and all that but they automatically all face the same way. And in the case of Syria, isn't it the case that it was that the media had invested in the state narrative that the regime in Damascus must be destroyed and that any story or narrative which in any way mitigated against that, even where true, had to be suppressed, isn't that so? I, I would say that's the case. I mean, I'm I'm trying to be a little bit cautious in my wording in terms of, even though what you're saying is correct, um, 
my kind of point is that I think there, despite this, there are still honest, good journalists out there. Um, you know, and I, I, like I said, I'm not doing this to try and damage the reputation of the media. Um, what I'm hoping, you know, is that honest journalists, and, and they do exist, you know, start pressuring their editors to, um, you know, to, to report this story. Um, even though I've been kind of in the middle of all this attention recently, at, at the end of the day, I don't think, you know, the story is not about me. Um, it should be about a, a very, you know, a long history of what, you know, what's been going on in Syria and how the media has failed to cover it properly. And I think, you know, honest journalists needs to start, need to start um, addressing that. Um, and I think part of the issue is that actually many reporters, surprisingly, uh, aren't aware of how this propaganda operates. You know, they, the many people probably aren't aware that Bellingcat is funded by these dubious sources. Um, I think too many people, you know, have gone into journalism without the proper training in, in you know, how the media has been, um, you know, manipulated over the years or how this propaganda really works. Um, I was in a slightly fortunate position if, you know, that was kind of my main driving force of getting into journalism after the Iraq war. It was kind of, you know, while I was still very young and as I decided I wanted to be a journalist, it was something that fascinated me. So it was something I studied, but I think to a lot of people, it's it's really not known. And then if journalists don't know this, I think to the to the wider public, even though I'm sure a lot of people had their suspicions about Syria, you know, given the history of everything, but... Um, I don't think many people in the public know about Bellingcat and how modern day propaganda is affecting the narrative. So I think that's what I'm trying to do. And hopefully, you know, something positive will come out of that. Well, uh, that's very loyal uh, of you. I can't say that I agree with you. Uh, I'm looking through the glass, uh, a 50 year veteran of British journalism, and he doesn't agree with you either. I don't believe that any of these journalists on main, mainstream uh, media are not aware of what it is they're involved in. And the heroes like you, unlike Peter Hitchens, a man of the right, a deeply conservative man, who's not Arab, who's not Muslim, who's not a supporter of the regime in Syria or any other regime. In fact, I've yet to find a regime uh, that he finds uh, favorable. Uh, but he has virtually alone in the English media, uh, been determined that the truth will out about all of this. So you're a rare breed. You're in good company. Tariq Haddad, thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Let's take a quick break. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at sputniknews.com. Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for the regular segment called Veterans for Peace, where we focus on the contemporary issues of war and peace that affect veterans, their families, the country, and the world as a whole. Veterans for Peace President Jerry Condon joins the show every Thursday. Hear about this and more every Thursday right here on Radio Sputnik. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. The world is our classroom, and you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. 
Now you could uh, read the full story of the Tariq Haddad Newsweek saga at his website, which is www.tarekhaddad.com. That's T-A-R-E-Q-H-A-D-D-A-D.com. Well worth it, I must tell you. The polls open till 9 o'clock. If there was a fox in your hen house, would you, A, kill it with a baseball bat, 28% of Julian Mom QC's supporters there, that's down two. Uh, put on a red jacket and chase it on horseback, that's up one, 42%. Strangle it with a kimono. For me, the kimono is one of the strangest aspects of this story, and uh, I think uh, deserving of more journalistic investigation. 30%, that's up one. You can vote on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Now, on this day, December 29, it was on this day in 1975 that the Sex Discrimination Act came in in the UK, which gave women equal pay in the workplace. At least that was the intent of the legislation. Some employers tried to change women's jobs descriptions to beat it, but 25 years after its implementation, the pay gap had narrowed from 40% between men and women to 20%. But more than 40 years on, there's still a fight for true equality. Earlier this year, female employees in the Glasgow City Council received a massive settlement over historic discrimination over pay, which in total could amount to some 500 million pounds. On this day in 1984, Rajiv Gandhi won a landslide victory in the Indian general election. His victory came just two months after the assassination of his mother, the Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. She had been shot dead by her own bodyguards in October. But despite his massive majority, Rajiv was Prime Minister for just one term and lost the 1989 election. And then himself was assassinated on the 21st of May, 1991. Four members of the Tamil Tigers the guerrilla group fighting for a separate homeland for Tamils in Sri Lanka were convicted of his murder. On this day in, 19, sorry, in 1986, former British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, the man who told the country they'd never had it so good, died. He accelerated Britain's decolonization from its empire, the one on which the sun never set. As I was told as a boy, according to my Irish grandfather, that was because God would never trust the British in the dark. In 1980, at this time, Britain had ground to a halt as Arctic conditions descended on the country and wreaked havoc on roads, rail and air. Forecasters had said that the winter's getting warmer, but a year later, people again woke up to a layer of ice. Going back a few centuries, it was on this day in 1813 that the British burned Buffalo, New York, during the War of 1812. And in 1890, the U.S. 7th Cavalry killed, I think we should say murdered, 300 Lakota Sioux on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation at Wounded Knee, one of the most affecting books I ever read, but in my heart at Wounded Knee. If you haven't read it, you must, simply must. And it was on this day in 1940, that the worst German air raid on London saw more than 10,000 bombs dropped 
including the first incendiary bombs at the height of the Blitz. Don't forget my uh, first novel, Queensway, is out in the next day or two, as soon as the printer is back from the Christmas holidays. You can pre-order it uh, from georgegalloway.com. Uh, it deals with the counterfactual history of what might have been on this day in 1940. Now, we've got Ask Adam uh, in the third hour and another guest, Dave Chawner, a comedian and uh, writer, humorist, uh, coming up also later in the show. But I've got two calls now, one of them from Benidorm. Better take that. Might be nicer weather there. John, welcome. Uh, welcome, George. Nice to hear um, from you in Benidorm. Yeah, I live on the in the posh part of Benidorm, a place called the Callow. It's very and, nice. And, and why not? Do you think Brexit will affect you in any way, John? Uh, well, if I was in England, I'd vote for Brexit. But I can't understand uh, people who, li who live in here now, uh, ex-Brits, voting for Brexit because... We can't get it any better than it is now. Now, uh, are, you, are, are, are you going to need a visa to carry on living in Benidorm? No, no. I've got my ins uh, Spanish insurance card. But I've had two operations since I've been here 10 years. I've had two cataract operations. I've been in hospitalized for three weeks. I use the Spanish health system. I've got nothing but praise. Excellent. I'm, I'm, uh, can I just ask one more question, a bit personal? Can you speak Spanish? No. Now That's that why is... I came to Benidorm. <laughs> I'm lazy. I, I took early retirement at 55, and uh, I'm enjoying my life. So I'm 75 now. I mean, I'm enjoying my life so much. Uh, but good for you. Good for you, John. Good for you, and uh, long life to you. Now, what did you call to speak about? Things. First, about if I may comment about the last election, yeah. and second about the Palestinian, the Palestinians. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, with the election, I disagree with you. I disagree with Tony Blair because I'm, I'm a bit of a soft left winger. Mm -hmm. I disagree with him going into Iraq, but at the end of the day, he won three general elections. And I don't think you should denigrate him quite so much because hard left-wingers will never get voted voted into power, in my opinion, in, in the Great Britain. Well, Jeremy uh, Corbyn nearly, nearly managed it in 2017. If he'd got just over 3,800 yeah, votes more in certain places, he would have been the Prime Minister. That's the closest we'll ever come because... He had a terrible prime minister against him. Theresa May was useless. Um, and uh, if you want to do your left-wing uh, justice, social justice, you've got to be in power. It's no use having a, the most members in the world or whatever. Unless you've got power, you can't do anything. Can I just test your thesis on uh, Tony Blair? Uh, yeah. It's a bit of an extreme uh, analogy I'm going to make, uh, but it's a bit like saying Hitler made the trains run on time. Uh, Tony Blair killed a million people, uh, but he got himself elected. Uh, that's not much of a moral 
high ground no, no, they'll drop. I, I said I said I disagreed with him going into Iraq. Yeah. But you, you you can't sort of denigrate him for everything. You can't say he never done any anything well, I, any good. I, I've no doubt he's nice to his wife and children, but he he killed he killed he killed a million people. So I I feel that he has to be denigrated. But anyway, go uh, ahead. Okay. Go ahead, Palestine. Uh, I, I've got a lot, lot of sympathy for the Palestinians. They're in a rotten position. Israel disappoints me. I was a big admirer of the Israelis in the 70s and the 80s. I think they've gone too far right-wing, hard-nosed now, and the Palestinians have missed their chance to get a good settlement because of the leadership problem they had with Yasser Arafat. I know he was a good friend of yours, but he made three basic mistakes. Well, he made more, but the three mistakes he made, he interfered with the politics in Jordan. He got kicked out of Jordan militarily by the Jordanian army. He done the same thing in Lebanon, and he got kicked out. I don't know what he done in Tunisia, and he's tried to interfere with a lot of Arab countries. He should have been fighting the Israelis when they were less powerful and more left. The Israeli government in those days was a left-wing government. They would have got a better deal in those days if they could have compromised. But Nasser Arafat fought too many wars against fellow Arabs and not enough against the Israelis. Well, uh, look, uh, it pains me. It pains me to uh, to open fire on your position, John. But you have to expect that I'm going to. Uh, first of all, uh, the last time there was a left-wing government in Israel, if left-wing can be used in this context, was 1977, when Begin won the election in 1977. He began a process which has now. Uh, lasted the best part of half a century of hard, extreme right-wing rule in uh, Israel. And as I predicted earlier, that isn't going to come to an end. Indeed, the so-called left-wing, the Israeli Labour Party, virtually doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it has something like seven or eight members in the uh, Knesset. Uh, secondly, Arafat didn't fight the Jordanians. It was the Jordanians that fought Arafat. Arafat didn't fight the Lebanese uh, militias uh, of the fascist Falange. It was them who fought him. Uh, he didn't do anything in Tunisia. He had the best possible uh, relations with the people in Tunisia. And many of them will tell you that even now, long, long after his Exile uh, was ended and he returned to Palestine and long after he was uh, murdered. Uh, you, didn't, you never did come to what the third of his mistakes were, uh, except to say that he should have done a deal. But that presupposes uh, that Israel was ready to do a deal uh, that would not represent the betrayal of the Palestinian cause. And I'm here to argue uh, that that was never, ever possible. And Arafat, no, I'll, I'll let you back in in a minute. Arafat's singular achievement was that the Palestinian people are still alive. 
they are still a factor. No one can ignore them. He refused to take the Palestinian people into the museum of ex-nations. And everybody knows, however distant they are from uh, achieving any of their goals, there will be no peace and no stability in the area as long as Palestinian rights are not dealt with, as long as Palestinian rights are not reckoned with. Over to you, John. Last word. Yeah, well, Nasser Arafat, he missed his opportunity. He was well-armed. He was supported by most of the Arab countries, although they didn't trust him. They called him a snake, didn't they? And I think that in the late 60s, 70s, he had his best chance to fight Instead of fighting in Lebanon, instead of fighting in Jordan, mm. he should have been fighting against the Israelis in Israel. But, but, Jordan, when, but jo Jordan and Lebanon would not allow him to fight Israel. That was the principal reason for the tension uh, between them. Well, why did, he, why did he go and get involved in other countries? He, he ended up being hated by the other Arab leaders. He certainly wasn't being well, trusted, I, I, was he? I would, I'd regard being hated by the Arab leaders as a badge of honour. Anyway, we're straying from the topic of tonight's conversation. I've enjoyed uh, disagreeing with you, John, in Benidorm. Let's go to Richard in Manchester. Go ahead, Richard. Hello, George. Hi there. Hello, George. Yep. Thank you very much indeed for having me on your show. Welcome. It's a pleasure. George, you are a great man. You put your point of view in an expression that I can't even put to words. You know the truth about Thank you. life. Thank you, You're kind of like my father, and you lived your life in drudgery. We had 13 children, George, and we lived in poverty. Mm. George, I'm telling you what you are talking about and what a lot of people on a few stations are saying is the truth. Tony Blair, today in the Telegraph, I was so pleased for an article to be brought up, and I don't want to go in the ins and outs, let people buy the Telegraph and look at what this... Well, I, 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 did, uh, I did read it, Richard, and it took his reputation to a new low. Uh, it turns out that during the time, he was actively seeking to sabotage uh, the Brexit process openly, nakedly, in a way which I think uh, bordered at least on treason. He was acting on behalf of a foreign power, namely the European Union, against his own government, his own state, his own people. During that time, he was asking the European Union for millions of pounds in funding for his foundation. And I never thought that Blair's reputation had much uh, distance left to fall. But it did fall after reading that Telegraph article, Richard. My God, you are exactly right. And people would not believe me. I voted for Blair. My father would talk about him. He was a coal miner. I'm now 76, and I look, and he would be stirring his grave at the fact that this man is going out making money. How much money does he want George to live? He's already How got a hundred million. 
100 million is probably a lot more than that, George. But we wanted to leave the EU. 17.4 million people wanted to, to, to leave the EU. My father would turn in his grave if he knew that I'd voted for Boris Johnson to get us out of the EU because I know that it is right. Nigel Farage has taken so much nonsense from these people, the Lib Dems and the people. I just can't explain it. And I, I look and I go, I, what have I got left? All I can do is talk to people like you. All I can do is talk to people on the radio, which I've done for three years now, against the globalist people like Blair, the greedy people, and a lot of people, George, you know who they are. They know who they are. Mm. And may God forgive them what they've done to the poor people of this world. I couldn't put that better than you just did, Richard. I'm not going to try. Thank you very much indeed for that call. Dave Chawner's up after this break. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. By any means necessary is your guide to the movement and efforts shaping the world around us from mass incarceration. No longer am I interested in or concerned with prison reform. I am interested only in the eradication of prisons. To the battle between police and water protectors. It was a pretty punishing disregard for the sanctity of human life that unleashing water cannons on peaceful, prayerful water protectors. From efforts to protect the environment. The climate movement is ready to, with plenty of opposition research and force and strength, along with, you know, the right of both science and morality to fight them on this. To the movement for black lives. When I first saw the Michael Brown video, and I saw that it clearly contradicted the narrative put forth uh, by the Ferguson Police Department and by police supporters in general, three words came to mind. Color me shocked. Stay tuned to By Any Means Necessary, five days a week here on Radio Sputnik. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. We are talking... 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. Only on Sputnik Radio. Get your calls in uh, for the final hour, 0207-792-255 if you're in Britain. And if you're in the US, 001-757-744-4480. Or you can tweet me and RTUK News as well as email me. Now, uh, Dave Chawner is a number one best-selling author. I hope to be one myself one day. He's an award-winning comic and he's a mental health campaigner. He wrote a terrific book called Weight Expectations, which I think is one of the best titles out there. One man's recovery from anorexia in 2018. He used to be a presenter at BBC's Tomorrow's World, remember that? And a presenter at an unknown 
local radio station plus fix radio. And he was, uh, he's been a guest on Channel 4, uh, on ITV, BBC, Discovery Channel, Sky and Sky News. But he's really uh, reached the peak of his career now because he joins me on the mother of all talk shows, which has a bigger audience than any of those aforementioned. <laughs> Dave, thank George, you George, couldn't much. have put it better myself. Well, Look Jenny, at that. Well, there the you go. The highlight of not only my career, but my life, I think it's fair to say. Do you know this? I'm often uh, told by people that I introduce that they'd like me to come with them on tour and do their uh, <laughs> introductions. So I'm available for uh, weddings and bar mitzvahs, as they Ready. say. So keep it in mind, uh, Dave. <laughs> Uh, for that. First of all, let, let's, I mean, talk about the title, Weight Expectations, One Man's Recovery from Anorexia. Uh, well, seldom can a book have been more brilliantly titled, and the book uh, does what it says on the tin, uh, and it's sold uh, by, the, by the ton, if you'll forgive the uh, pun. Uh, tell us about that book. What led to it? So like basically I, I had anorexia for uh, a number of years, like 10 years, and I didn't really see many blokes talking about it. And also the thing that I think with mental health is it's really important and we obviously understand that, but no one's joking about it. And I think people are uncomfortable. And the original title, because it was all about anorexia and I also wanted it to be funny. The original title, I really wanted to call it The Real Hunger Games but apparently that infringes copyright. So I oh, wrote yeah. this book that was like, sort of trying to demystify yeah, some yeah. of them. And Charles Dickens is uh, long out of uh, copyright, so great <laughs> expectations. Uh, they couldn't have sued you for passing off. Uh, <laughs> so like, can, do you mind talking about the anorexia? Because yeah. I'm, uh, I'm fascinated uh, by that. Uh, it's something that in most people's mind mm. affects girls because of the pressure on girls about appearance and so on. Of course, there's pressure on boys, but the pressure on girls is relentless and massive. Uh, it's unusual, to me anyway. I mean, yeah. just have not met enough uh, people, but it's unusual for a bloke and even more unusual, one that's prepared to talk about it and write about it. Yeah, I think like so. I, I think you're absolutely right that a lot of blokes don't talk about it. If you look at the stats, about ten percent of anorexics are men, and it's going up year on year on year. And it's you know a lot of, uh, sort of body pressures, but also disease coping mechanisms, etc. And I kind of found uh, that it's really useful, sort of trying to write and read and listen to other people's stories. And that's why I kind of wanted to uh, do the book so that it could be like a positive force to try and get other people to open up. And you know what? Like more and more people are coming out. More and more people are talking about mental health rather than mental illness, which is really exciting. And it's, yeah, I think, to be honest, like the body positivity movement's moving forward and a lot more people are aware of it now and getting increasingly understandable about it. And how long, you said several years, how long were you anorexic and how bad did it get? So I, I sort of, about the age of 17, I sort of slipped into it and I didn't get any treatment until I was like 24. And even then I didn't really want to get help 
for it um, because I kind of, again, it was my coping mechanism and I knew very much what I was doing. And I was, you know, anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental health problem. And I knew what I was doing and I started writing the letters and sort of preparing all the stuff for when it would inevitably take me. But I, um, I sort of like got depression i couldn't deal with that anymore and i engaged with treatment so i had it for about eight or nine years before i actually got any help and one of the things i found really really difficult is i wanted to talk about it i wanted to be like the same person to people but i found as soon as people found out that i've got a mental illness they started treating me differently like something fragile and i get that that's because that was a caring loving thing but i just think that comedy and humor is such a great way of like interacting with people and putting them at ease that i thought it would be quite nice to use that to talk about it very openly i mean were you funny while you were ill <laughs> I mean, to be honest, George, a lot of people don't think I'm funny now. So I think that's, uh, that's you know, a, a different thing. But I, um, I think the thing is, it's really important to like, stress that I don't joke about anorexia. I joke around it in order to sort of try and raise awareness of that. And I think the difference between comedy and bullying is who's being laughed at. So sensitively using comedy in order to make people feel like it's something that they can ask questions. Because you know what? Yeah, maybe you might ask the wrong question, but if it comes from the right place, then I don't really think there is such a thing as a wrong question. It's actually up to us to kind of educate people and get them to sort of know and help us try and understand it a little bit more as well. And have you now, as it were, been typecast as this? Can you move on to <laughs> other subjects for your uh, comedy or are, you, are they always, as they say on The Sopranos, pulling you back in? <laughs> There's always like an element of that, but I I, realize, I only realised the other day, I'd done five Edinburgh shows. The first one was about anorexia. The second one was about how I had to have a circumcision when I was 26. Third one was about being well, a vegan. that must have been painful. <laughs> yeah, well, I originally wanted to call it From the Hood, but uh, they wouldn't let me with that <laughs> And I, I've done like really like when you look at the, the topics, it was like really dark and serious. But I think that kind of makes the most interesting topics for comedy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, obviously, it's words that they say uh, that uh, subjects are really about timing. I mean, sometimes yeah. it's too soon uh, to uh, joke about things, but there comes yeah. a point at which it is correct to do so. And yeah. uh, I suppose circumcision at 26 is inherently funny if it's not you that's getting the chop. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the issue uh, I'm really getting at is obviously people like Billy Connolly drew his humor from uh, the life that he lived. You drew your humor uh, from the, uh, the illness that you had. Um, what's going to happen now that you're rich and comfortable and you look, uh, you look at exactly the right weight, uh, where is your humor going to come from? I don't know. I'm, I'm just going to have to create something to complain about, really. I mean, that, that's, that's one of the things that I find uh, most difficult. I think that's why now I really... Um, we always talk about the one in four people that has mental illness, but I'm really interested in like, the four in four people that have mental health, that everyone has mental health, and I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. So we're always talking about illness, we talk about 
health and, and positivity rather than negativity. Because as soon as you talk about mental health, people always think that you're going to talk about, uh, you know, stats and people dying and all that. And you know what? There's enough reason to be depressed in the world. And I think the hardest thing is trying to like be uplifting about it now. So I think that's the, the kind of way forward. And I want to sort of put on a, a more, more lighthearted, more positive spin on what is normally treated as a very serious topic. Now, uh, where are you performing these days? How can people follow your work? And do you, well, uh, uh, have you got a, a follow-up to weight expectations in yeah. the pipeline? Well, I like, I, I'm not a very good writer. I mean, a lot of people were surprised I could read, let alone write. So I don't think there's going to be another book, but I am working on a show at the moment that's going to uh, Glasgow Comedy Fest, Leicester Comedy Fest, Brighton Fringe, Edinburgh Fringe. We're going over to Sweden. So all around, and I'm on Twitter if anyone's interested. You're on Twitter as what? Uh, at Dave Chawner. At Dave Chawner, C-H-A-W-N-E-R. Dave, you're you a terrific sport. Yeah, I, I should be, uh, and I'm cheap also. Uh, thank, you. <laughs> thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. More power uh, to your elbow. Thanks very much, uh, Dave, uh, for that. More calls on the way, but let me uh, get some of this paperwork uh, dealt with. Uh, Tara says Sanders didn't fight for his millions of disenfranchised voters. He joined the bullies and yet his blinded cult still supports him. Why? And Mr. Gossamer says the Liberals in the Democratic Party will do what the Liberals in Labour did to Corbyn, destroy his electability via lies and rumours. Patrick McCarthy says Bernie does have a warmongering and belligerent nature, which has flared up on occasion. Heaven forfend. Uh, if he's really a principled progressive, he wouldn't have endorsed the warmonger Hillary Rodham Clinton. I think you should cut him some slack, Patrick, and forgive him the occasional flaring up of belligerence. To get to his age and face the foes that he has faced, well, you need to have uh, a bit of toughness about you. Andrew Marrero says the Democrats are shooting themselves in the foot. Nobody likes them anymore. Oh, that sounds a bit laborish. Chris is in New Zealand, where it's already tomorrow. So we better hear from him. Good morning to you, Chris. Ah, that's a very good evening to you, George. Thank and you. Um, I'm originally from Belfast in Ireland. Excellent. And, um, I'm anxious to know your prediction for 2020 um, for Ireland. Are we going to be reunited? <laughs> well, I, I said today I did a, an interview, which is out there now on YouTube, with a very fine American journalist, Anya Parampil. Uh, the program's called Red Lines. Uh, and I'm talking there about Brexit, about Britain, about Ireland. And I put it this way, Chris, that Ireland with Brexit, thank you very much, all those uh, people who used to send me hate mail from the Republican movement in the six counties, uh, cursing me because of my stand on Brexit. Brexit has put Ireland on a superhighway with no exit ramp towards reunification. And the island will be reunified uh, not much longer than the 100 years it's taken uh, so far. Uh, my prediction would be that there will be a united Ireland before 2025. That's my prediction. Chris, where do you stand? 
Well, of, of course, uh, Sinn Féin is looking for um, a, a unity poll um, within five years. And interestingly enough, the, uh, the, the two um, parties south um, are uh, not not keen on um, having a border poll. Um, exactly. And these were, of course, they don't the, want, the, the they, they actually don't. They don't want Ireland reunited. Vardakar and whatever jokers in charge of Fianna Foyle, uh, the last thing they want is uh, a united Ireland because a united Ireland would put Sinn Féin in power. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. And, and of course, you're talking about Michal Martin, yeah. Is that his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nihai, yeah. I, Actually, Nihai no, George, you'll be interested, you'll be interested. Outside in my garden, I have got the four provinces flag flying. Now, um, I don't know whether you're familiar with that one. Um, that well, I, flag. I, I can do a mean rendition of four green fields. <laughs> no. and one, yeah, and one of them, one of them in bondage. Most people, uh, Irish flag would be the green, white, and orange. But this is an interesting flag. The four provinces, and of course, the red hand and Ulster is on. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, it's a very, it's, it's very important that Chris, because confidence-building measures with the unionist minority in the six counties is crucially important. That's why I support, for example. Boris Johnson's idea of building a bridge uh, between the six counties and Scotland, uh, because I think that that would be a very useful reassurance uh, to the unionist minority uh, in the north of Ireland uh, that uh, they could continue to feel Scottish or feel uh, British as well as being Irish. I think this kind of thing is very important. Oh, it would certainly be able to drive back home, um, uh, you know, as opposed to getting on a ship like they did the first time over 400 years ago. You know? Well, I, I, I used to be a regular as a child on the Stranraer to Larn uh, uh, ferry, and we used to then drive our little uh, Austin A30 uh, down to Dublin and Dunleary. Uh, and I remember... Um, more or less being told to keep our heads down as we went through the north, and for God's sake, don't tell anybody we're Catholics. That's right, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, Times I, have I, changed, I, though, I Chris. Times have changed for the better, no? Pardon? Times have changed for the better. Well, uh, yeah, as a matter of interest, um, I used to live four doors away from uh, the famous George Best. And um, so growing up in that particular part of Belfast, the Catholics were a, a minority. And, and uh, we had to keep our heads down big time. Um, and incidentally, if you ever get around to reading his biography, um, our family uh, gets uh, mentioned in, in the foreword of uh, that particular biography uh, of the rest. Well, I, I, I have it actually at home, so I'll re-look at it when I, when I get home uh, this evening. Chris, thanks for that wonderful call uh, from uh, Down Under, Chris in New Zealand. Uh, he asked for my prediction on the United Ireland question. I gave you it. 2025. Ink it in your diary. Here's the news with Jamie Lowe. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? 
Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. This is Dominic Carter, a political reporter in New York for Verizon Files TV News. This is Dr. Bill Honigman, a progressive Democrat for America, PDAmerica.org. Hey, everybody, my name is Tim Black of the Tim Black Show. This is Tom Luongo of Gold Coast and Guns. Hello, this is Benny Johnson. Hi, this is Juanita Broderick, author of You'd Better Put Some Ice on That. This is Jamal Thomas from the Progressive Soapbox. Hey, this is Raheem from D.C. This is Rachel Blevins, a correspondent with RT America, and you're listening to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. When I'm waking up in the morning, I'm looking for what's on the queue for today. I tune to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. The wokest radio show for your wokest AM. These guys are the best in the business and experts when it comes to policy. They're bringing you the top headlines with an angle that you won't see in the mainstream media. Fall Lines is the greatest show on the radio. I enjoy immensely talking with Ali and Garland. They always treat me uh, from either side with due respect, and it's a wonderful conversation. The best morning news show in America. Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. Lee and Garland speak truth to power from the depths of the swamp itself, right here on Radio Sputnik. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Radio Sputnik News. Tens of thousands of residents and holidaymakers in the Australian state of Victoria have been told to evacuate amid worsening bushfire conditions. Officials say that temperatures of over 40 degrees Celsius, strong winds, thunderstorms and a change of wind direction means that tomorrow will be a day of extreme danger. More than 100 fires are continuing to burn across Australia. The biggest ones are ranging near the city of Sydney in New South Wales, where more than a quarter of a million people have signed a petition calling for the new Year's Eve fireworks to be cancelled and the money instead spent on fighting fires. At least five people have been stabbed at the house of a rabbi in New York State. The house in Monzi, north of New York City, was hosting a religious celebration when the attacker burst in. Police say the suspect fled but was later taken into custody. The motive was not immediately clear and one of the victims was stabbed at least six times. The attack came a day after New York City police officers said that they were stepping up patrols in heavily Jewish districts following a spate of anti-Semitic threats and attacks. A woman whose husband and two children drowned in a swimming pool at a Spanish resort is calling for further investigations into their deaths. Spanish police believe 52-year-old Gabriel Diaz and his daughter Comfort, aged nine, and 16-year-old son died after getting out of their depth, but Olubunmi Diaz said all three could swim and she believes there was a fault with the pool. Her lawyer says that she wants different engineers to look at it.
The hotel operator Club La Costa World says her claims are directly at odds with the findings of the police report and that their exhaustive investigations have confirmed that the pool was working. The Spanish police said in a statement on Saturday that the incident on Christmas Eve was a tragic accident caused by the victim's lack of expertise in swimming. They said divers retrieved comfort swimming hat from the pool pump but investigators had found nothing wrong with the pool. An autopsy of the bodies found that they died by drowning. Renowned Scottish author and artist Alastair Gray has died. The 85-year-old was known for novels such as Lanark and the award-winning Poor Things, which are both set in Glasgow where he was born. His public murals are visible across the city with further pieces on display at the V&A and at the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art. He died on Sunday at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital. His family said that he wanted to leave his body to science so that there would be no funeral. The online publication of the addresses of more than 1,000 of the UK's New Year's Honours list recipients was a complete disaster, a former, cabinet, a former Conservative cabinet minister claims. Ian Duncan Smith, who was knighted, said that ministers needed to ask very serious questions about how it had happened, while a former civil service chief called it a serious failure. Details of celebrities, senior police officers and politicians were released. The list of 1,097 honours recipients including Elton John and cricketer Ben Stokes was uploaded to an official website on Friday evening and removed on Saturday. Most of the entries in the spreadsheet included a full list of addresses including house numbers and postcodes. The Cabinet Office said that the document was uploaded to a website and was visible for about an hour. A rhino thought to be the oldest in the world has died in Tanzania, aged 57. Fausta, an eastern black rhino, was first sighted in the Nongoro crater in 1965 when she was three. She roamed the crater freely for more than 54 years, but health issues in her old age required her to spend her few final years receiving specialist care in a sanctuary. And finally, in what may be a world's first, a British transgender man has given birth. Reuben Sharp, aged 39, transitioned to a man 12 years ago, taking hormones which gave him facial hair, a deep voice and masculine features. Sharp and his 28-year-old partner, Jay, who identifies as neither male or female, were helped by a trans doctor and a trans sperm donor. After realising he wanted a child, Sharp visited his doctor and was told that it was possible. The wedding photographer who lives in Brighton took a break from his testosterone medicine so he could undergo fertility treatment. And that's the news here on Sputnik. I'm Jamie Lowe. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway, only on Sputnik Radio. You're watching or listening to the mother of all talk shows. It's the final hour, so that's largely given over to you and your calls, punctuated with the wisdom of my good friend, Adam Gary. Welcome, Adam. If you have a Thank specific you. question for Adam, hashtag AskAdam. There's also a second poll. What are you going to give up in February? A, Twitter, B, cigarettes, C, other. Plenty of scope there. I myself, give, I mean, 
I never drank alcohol and I've given up smoking five years ago. Uh, so there's not actually much left that I can give up. Uh, maybe the odd potato. Uh, Rob Marin says there's no such thing as the Labour Party anymore. Other Democrats in the US. It's flipped left to right, right to left, up, down, down, up. That's an interesting observation. Tell us uh, your thoughts on that, Adam. Well, I think that what, what he's getting at, and it's very important, is that the core working-class voters that would make up the Labour Party in Britain, and which in the United States made up a vast amount of the electorate for the Democratic Party, they've been left temporarily homeless by the normal parties of affiliation. And into that void has slipped first Donald Trump, who ran on issues of let's protect industry, let's invest in industry, your jobs are being taken away and I'm going to prevent that from eroding any further. And in Britain, it, there was less of an emphasis, to be fair, on the industrial jobs issues than with Trump. But Brexit, but Brexit, was, Brexit was a proxy for yes, those arguments. Absolutely, because Brexit, all the people that were frustrated at the decline of industry, frankly, the theft of industry, which took place gradually, and in many ways not so gradually, since the country was undemocratically taken into the EU, uh, well, the EEC as it was then in 73, people were venting their frustration, and quite rightly so. So I think that uh, the caller, not the caller, but the writer yeah, is absolutely yeah. right. Uh, George, seeing that the UK is lumbered with a right-wing Tory government with all that that implies, what do you think would happen to the special relationship, if God willing, Bernie Sanders, a socialist, were ever to get to the top job in the US. That's from Richard. Now, you, you don't think that Bernie uh, will beat Trump. You don't think anyone can beat uh, Trump. But uh, just imagine uh, that you had uh, uh, a more left-wing leader in the United States than we've got in Britain. What would that do to the special relationship? Well, we don't have to even look to a left-wing leader because Donald Trump, whilst not left-wing, was very much anti-establishment mm. on the foreign policy mm. front. And what did it do to Britain? It confused Britain. It infuriated many in the British foreign policy establishment. It arrested them. It beguiled. It befuddled. And I think a lot of that was also due to the fact that when Trump was elected, you had Theresa May, who is about as inflexible as an iron rod. But with Boris, and if it, if it were to be Bernie in the White House and Boris in number 10, I think what you'd see is Britain reducing its role in foreign affairs because there would be no American coattail to hang on to. This, however, assumes that a Bernie Saunders foreign policy would be similar to, let's say, a George Galloway foreign policy, which I don't think would be the case if he were to win. And as you said, I don't think, he, I don't think any of them can beat Trump. I think Trump is quite Teflon, but if somehow he was to get in, I think that he would make a, a deal with this so-called deep state and say, I'll do my domestic stuff without hindrance, but you lot can take care of the foreign policy business as you. Let's take uh, Asim in Edinburgh on China and the Uyghur Muslims. Go ahead, Asim. Hi, George. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Uh, I'm very good. I hope Adam's doing fine as well. Yeah, so, yeah we're all in uh, fine form. Yes, go ahead. Uh-huh. And that's good to hear. Uh, so basically, my question is, obviously, you've obviously got a, a bit of a briefing. Uh, so it's about China, obviously. So the, the situation we're in Xinjiang. And um, basically, the, my question really is, is really straightforward. 
what can other countries do to try and stop China? Because China's an economic superpower. It's like, uh, right now it's at number two. I mean, Stop China doing what? Well, in saying, well we're aware of what's, what's happening in Xinjiang. For example, they're putting in Muslims or, um, or Kazakhs as well into what they call re-education camps, which we know isn't true. We know they're concentration camps. We know fine that they are... How do you know that? Tell me how you know that. What are you basing that on? Well, what, what we've seen in the media and all the people that have come out of well, it, uh, have come out from you, them. you don't want to read, uh, believe everything you read in the oh, media, oh, Asim. You didn't, you didn't believe it when they were saying it about Jeremy Corbyn, did you? No, I absolutely not, no. You see my point? The, yeah, I do, the, there's, a, there's a massive propaganda barrage against China and its target moves. Uh, you're too young to remember, but... Uh, there was once upon a time a man who thought he was God, uh, called the Dalai Lama, uh, was the flavor of the month in Western propaganda. And China was routinely accused uh, of uh, butchering uh, the Tibetans, uh, crushing their culture, starving their people. And it was all fake news. And uh, nowadays, uh, people go on holiday uh, to the uh, Chinese province of Tibet and wonder at the marvel, at the wonders uh, that they see. Uh, there was, a, again, before you were born, the Falun Gong, uh, a, a bizarre a religious cult uh, that were supposedly repressed by China, and they became the flavor of the month in, uh, in Western uh, propaganda. Uh, the Muslim question is the latest. Hong Kong is another. Uh, I've got my own criticisms of Chinese policy, uh, towards its uh, religious minorities. But I don't accept for one minute your apparent thesis uh, that, uh, that uh, millions of Muslims in Xinjiang are in concentration camps. And there's no evidence at all to back that thesis. Adam? Well, it is a bit funny that the same people, literally the very same people who don't care about Muslims in Libya, in Syria, in Iraq, in Kashmir, in, in Nigeria, in so many places, magically they found the one place on earth yeah. where they pretend to care about Muslims, uh, but... Even that is going to, frankly, shift, and I think it's going to leave a lot of people who think that there's going to be some great liberal crusade in hand with uh, uh, misguided and misled Muslim populations against China. They're going to be disappointed because the main foci of the anti-China info war is on Hong Kong for a very simple reason. Very few people in the outside world go to Xinjiang in northwest China, but many go to Hong Kong. It's a financial center strapped on to a giant shopping mall. And beyond that, the people in Hong Kong or uh, at least their made-for-TV image is quite relatable to people in New York and London. They're a-religious, like people in London and New York. Uh, they dress immodestly, like people in London and New York, and they live that kind of lifestyle. So when it comes to, uh, when it comes to hitching the anti-China bandwagon to a stallion, trust me, it's not going to be the Muslim stallion, it's going to be the Hong Kong stallion, but even that one hasn't really come in First place. The, there is a, a problem with Islamist extremism in China, as indeed there is in England yes. <laughs> and uh, in every uh, country 
uh, around the world, actually, including Nigeria, to which you uh, uh, just alluded. Uh, China is struggling with that. There are tens of thousands of Uyghur Muslims in the jihadist armies in Syria, yes. for example. That's why uh, China is now paying much more attention to the Middle East and to the Syrian uh, theater in particular because they know uh, that these uh, throat cutters learning their trade in Syria are going one day to be back in China and uh, they're going to have to fight them there. Uh, so China is wrestling with uh, the existence of Islamist fanaticism in Xinjiang, which is, of course, a Turkic-speaking uh, area of China, receiving a lot of propaganda and some financial, maybe even some military uh, support from some Muslim countries, the usual suspects in particular. Uh, I still think that China could do much better in explaining its situation to the world. For example, it was a big mistake for China to react to Mesut Ozil, the Turkish footballer's comments, uh, by making uh, an immediate blackout uh, on Arsenal and on Ozil, and by extension on Turkey. He's Turkish. Uh, it was a mistake to do that. They should have used that to open up this debate, this discussion that I'm doing on their behalf, unpaid, I should say, uh, this evening. Uh, they should explain to people what's going on in Xinjiang uh, because there's lots of people uh, like Asim uh, around the world who think that China bans Ramadan, forces Muslims to eat pork and drink alcohol and has incarcerated millions of people in Xinjiang in concentration camps. China should be dealing with this much better than it is. Yes, and one of the interesting things about Chinese media is it's not really programmed for this world of punch and judy international propaganda, international information, call it what you will. Um, the, things are improving in a way. There's a bus service now that goes between Xinjiang and Lahore in Pakistan, which is, of course, the closest ally of China in the Muslim world, arguably one of China's closest all-weather allies in the world. And there have been many scholars, many tourists, uh, many people from all walks of life in Pakistan who have written about their personal experiences of going from a Muslim country, a formerly Muslim country, over the border into China and seeing that things, what's different than Pakistan to be sure, it's not this kind of repressive hellish situation that people in the Washington Post and others who found the WMD before they set a foot in Iraq were so eager to tell the world. So I think that what China ought to do is open up and say you're invited to come and take a look for yourself. And to be fair, they're doing that more than they have, but the defensive posture, which in a way is understandable, it alienates potential sympathetic ears and eyes and feet. Great. Let's hear from Mike in South Carolina. He's got a question for you, Adam. Go ahead, Mike. I, I want to talk about Bernie Sanders, but I've got one quick thing I want to say about China, yeah. and that is they have shown far more restraint than the Obama administration would have in that same situation in Hong Kong, because, uh, you know, Obama was very quick to stamp out 
uh, all of the protests in uh, uh, New York City regarding the one percenters. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? I mean, they went all over the country, you know, closing down all of the Occupy Wall Street and the rest of it. Uh, and that's Good not point. happened in Good Hong point, Kong. Mike. You know, Good point, Mike. But but as far as Bernie Sanders is concerned, mm-hmm. uh, Katie had the, the absolute her finger on the pulse of what's happening in the United States. Adam thinks that uh, that uh, Trump can't lose this election, but he needs to understand that even by Fox News standards, over fifty percent of the people in the United States want Trump not only impeached but removed from office. And and how how can you win? How can you possibly win an election when over half the people want him removed from office? Well, in an opinion poll, uh, that's uh, true. Uh, but the uh, election isn't fought by opinion poll. Neither is it fought on the popular vote. And I agree with Michael Moore, who said this week uh, that uh, that uh, Trump uh, could well lose uh, the popular vote again, even by more than he did against Hillary Clinton. Uh, but because of the rules of the Electoral College, still win the presidency. Adam. Well, yes, um, I agree with that, even though I would go a step further and to say that I think that this time he'll win the popular vote. I mean, if Bush could do it, for God's sake, in 2004, Trump, who's a ten times more charismatic figure and much more unique figure, a much more nationalistic figure than, the, than Bush the Terrible, I think he'll be able to win quite comfortably. I think depending on who his opponent is, we could see the biggest gap since 1984 when Ronald Reagan crushed... Uh, Uh, Mondale decisively. My view is, if the Democrats pick as weak a candidate as they will probably pick, I think that that we could see the Democratic candidate winning five states or less. So when it comes to a prediction, I'm not setting it in stone because a lot can change between now and November of next year. But if they pick a weak candidate, which I suspect they will, I should think that they might win five states or less with all of the others going to Trump. Mike, last word to you. Yeah, I, I would say I would say this about that. Uh, uh, Trump himself and the Republican Party cannot win this election. The only person that can lose the election is the Democrats, and they're and they're well on the way to doing that if they actually allow uh, Joe Biden or somebody like him to become their candidate. If Bernie Sanders is the candidate, uh, he will win this election hands down. But uh, uh, the only way that, that, that Trump can can win is if the Democrats give it to him. And I don't put it past them because there are so many. Establishment Democrats running the DNC and the DCCC uh, that they actually might uh, elect, you know, use their their super delegates in a second vote to put in somebody like a Joe Biden, which is an automatic loss, and and that's the only way Trump can win. Mike, thanks for the call from South Carolina. Of course, if the uh, super delegates put in someone like Joe Biden, there would be all hell would break loose in the Democratic Party. Uh, the possibility of Sanders in those circumstances making a third party uh, run uh, would be, I think, enormously powerful, in which case your man would win uh, even more handsomely. Which is one of the reasons I think that he, he would be restrained from doing so, because even though his base would be livid if they put an Elizabeth Warren or a Joe Biden or one of the others in their place, or they were to steal it from him, the way, frankly, that Hillary and her people stole it in 2016, there would be a lot of people who would shift from being pro-Bernie to just being anti-Trump. Because among the, among the people who hate Donald Trump, they really hate 
hate him. And I think that there would be a lot of cajoling going on to say, Bernie, don't do it. Just hold your nose and say that you'll smile and take a Polaroid picture yeah, with Elizabeth Warren. Sure, but they don't even have a House of Lords they can elevate him to. <laughs> There's nothing they can offer uh, old Bernie except a chance at the uh, presidency. Uh, so I think they'll find it difficult. Um, they'll certainly find it difficult to uh, carry his base. I mean, yes. the idea that Sanders voters are going to transfer to Joe Biden is frankly ridiculous. Many They're will not. either stay home or if Jill Stein runs again, yeah. which she may well do as a Green Party candidate, I think a good number of Bernie people would go over to her. Adam, can you please tell us who will win the Scottish Premiership this season? Thanks. James in Dundee. Shall I answer that for you? I think it's probably a safer bet. <laughs> the famous Glasgow Celtic. Uh, greetings, George and Adam. I'm from the country of Slovenia. Sorry in advance for Melania and Klobuchar. But in school, we never had an in-depth analysis of what exactly happened during the collapse of Yugoslavia, Tito's Yugoslavia to be exact, and what was Slovenia's role during these events. I was born years after the initial tragedy, and my parents and elders gave me conflicting accounts of what happened. I can't get an objective picture, so I was wondering if Adam can bring some clarity mm. on this issue. It's a big issue. Maybe we should uh, have a proper uh, debate on it, but have a stab at, uh, at uh, a brief synopsis. Well, the first thing that came to my mind is, you know you're getting old when someone from the former Yugoslavia asks you what happened to in, during the collapse of the former Yugoslavia. Good that was point. the first thing that came to Good my mind. Point. The second thing is that Slovenia was the only constituent republic of Yugoslavia that seceded peacefully. It was the first to declare independence in 1991, and although there, were, there was a kind of political skirmish, there was no no real fight in any meaningful way, the way there was in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Croatia, uh, the, the Serbian uh, constituent element of Kosovo, and to uh, some degree Macedonia, which is now called North Macedonia, and may well be subsumed into a greater Albania over the next five years. Slovenia was always a, a, a funny one because Whilst it was a, a Slavic country, um, like most of the rest of Yugoslavia, and whilst it was a majority Catholic country like Croatia, there was always something to do... Slovenia was always sort of one foot in the wider Austrian world, in spite of a different ethnicity. Germany drove the recognition of independent Slovenia. Yes, quite so, and they even... Mrs Thatcher wasn't happy about that. Uh, yes. Uh, she, she opined uh, uh, quite strongly. Uh, that the Germans had prematurely uh, triggered the problems in Yugoslavia yes. by, by, by prematurely recognizing breakaway states. And she was also uh, very upset with uh, her erstwhile friend, uh, George H.W. Bush, because she was very reticent to see German reunification happen so early. And, and her views were really a generational thing, rather than anything to do with her, her party. But by the time Slovenia seceded, she was already having dealt with the reunification of Michael Heseltine and John Major, <laughs> far from being worried about the breakup of Yugoslavia and the reunification of Germany. But long story short, Culturally, Slovenia's always had one foot to the north of the rest of Yugoslavia. And, and because of that, I think that's why it wasn't a blood-soaked secession, as almost all of the others were. Philip in New Jersey. 
He thinks Biden's yeah, hi, stronger George. than we do. Go ahead, Philip. Yeah, hi, George. Hi. Um, uh, I back Bernie in uh, 2016, and I really back him strongly uh, this year. But I think uh, you and Adam and others are underestimating Biden. I think uh, Biden is just more popular with average voters as opposed to college-educated voters here and in the U.K. than you might think. And he reminds me of George W. Bush, who made a lot of mistakes when he would, uh, you know, in some of his speaking, but nevertheless, average voters liked him. Mm. And I think uh, also this election, as uh, many in uh, the Western world and in the U.S. uh, today, is more about uh, who you don't want to win. I think voters in the U.K. look like they did not want Corbyn in office, and they uh, wanted Brexit, so they voted for Boris. I think uh, this election in 2020 will be, do you want Trump or not? And I think 50% of the people hate him, maybe 40, 42% like him. And I think uh, Biden, even though he's clearly uh, losing a step, uh, attacks on him will fall off just uh, the way attacks on Trump and his womanizing and, you know, paying off prostitutes fall off. Everybody knows that. Uh, They either accept it or they don't. And uh, I think there will be absolutely no third party running because I think uh, no Democrat and even Michael Bloomberg will uh, ultimately risk seeing Trump elected. And I think uh, you shouldn't forget the secret weapon Democrats have in 2020, and that is uh, none of them are Bernie, are uh, Hillary Clinton. I couldn't stand Hillary. Uh, I'm not sure if she's the only Democrat running that uh, I'm not sure if I'd vote about vote for. I think she's just deeply corrupt, more than Biden. Uh, I think Biden's son Hunter is a grifter, but. I'm not sure Joe is uh, that way, whereas Hillary was. And Hillary's also uh, just an avid warmonger, as you well know. And I don't think Biden is as bad. And I think uh, Bernie's, uh, you know, a lot better than Biden. But I think, uh, you know, they win. And I think they're both good enough to win in the uh, key industrial states. Uh, They take somewhat different voters. Bernie will take uh, more anti-establishment voters, more younger people, and Biden will take, I think, more of the older uh, white voters who aren't so uh, entranced with left liberalism, but, uh, you know, Biden is a kind of uh, older Democrat, uh, maybe similar to some older Labor Party. Well, I think uh, that's a a fantastically good call, uh, and that it's uh, counter to what we've been saying uh, makes it the more Uh, valuable. Uh, Let me ask you a question or two, though, Phil, uh, before I ask Adam to respond. I absolutely take your point that amongst the general electorate, uh, Biden is not as weak as I suspect he is in the primaries, uh, because, of course, whilst many millions vote in the primaries, far more people vote in the general presidential uh, election. Uh, 
I think that Bernie will win because his base amongst uh, politically active people and politically conscious people who are the most likely to vote in primaries is much greater than uh, Biden's. And my second point to you would be this. I take your point that insulting the addiction, uh, the vocabulary, uh, the facial characteristics and simian knuckle-dragging of George W. Bush worked in political circles but didn't necessarily amongst the general public, uh, many of whom are not particular linguists themselves. Uh, when it comes to the debate, the many debates, it seems to me that Donald Trump would pulverize Joe Biden. He's not strong enough to stand up nowadays, maybe once upon a time, but he's at least 20 years past his sell-by date. I feel that he would be pulverized by Trump. Your response, Philip? Well, I think uh, uh, he, he, is, he has clearly lost a step since uh, 2012. But if you look at 2012's debate uh, he had against Paul Ryan, it was the single best debate performance of any of them, including Obama and Romney. He really handled uh, Ryan very well, pushed back on Ryan's uh, avid uh, desire to uh, cut back on the welfare state, in particular Medicare and Social Security. And that's always been a good Democratic Party response that they often don't make. And I also think Biden performed very well against Sarah Palin in 2012. And that wasn't as easy as people would think because a lot of people would, were looking to see if uh, Biden would look down on this, uh, you know, outsider first-time governor candidate who's a woman that he might be uh, acting like he's superior to her, and I thought he, uh, he handled that well. Uh, so I thought he, you know, he has been a better debater than people think. I admit he's lost something, uh, but uh, again, I think uh, just like with Trump's own issues, which Hillary mistakenly emphasized constantly, including in my state, which was, uh, you know, ridiculous to advertise in New York City when it's a heavily Democratic area. But I saw ad after ad on Trump's temperament. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows about Biden's issues, I think, when they watch him. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of the older whites, again, are comfortable with him. And a lot of the others, uh, younger people in particular, like my sons, I think will vote for him anyway just to get rid of Trump. And they know... Uh, Biden will be a one-term president. And uh, again, I hope Bernie wins, but I'm going to vote for Biden anyway. So uh, Interesting. Let's, I think let's, he... uh, let's ask Adam for the final word on this then. Adam. Well, I agree that essentially he's passed his sell-by date. When he was reading Neil Kinnock's speeches with the vigor of comparative youth, that was one thing, but it's a very different... Joe Biden, and unlike Bernie, who's still, you know, rocking and socking, and unlike Trump, who's no spring chicken, but he's rocking and socking, I think uh, Biden's days of reading Neil Kinnock's speeches with enthusiasm have definitely waned. But then there's the X factor, which is what is Trump 
going to do over the next 11 months. And these are my predictions, all of which bode well for him at election time. One, I think he's going to accelerate a trade deal with China, which will be good for the markets, good for prices, good for the agricultural industry in the US, which, to be fair, has been the only industry hit hard by the China trade war. I think that, too, he's going to have some more successful summits with Kim Jong-un, uh, free of the walrus, to, you know, barking in the corner. That would be John Bolton. He's gone. He was the main obstacle to peace. And so I think we're going to see Trump get to play the role of being very presidential, uh, doing a peace summit with both Korean leaders. The, he'll probably doubtless talk to the Chinese president and the Russian president about the issue and look very statesmanlike in the process. And I think with those things in mind, so long as the trade deals can carry the markets and the jobs numbers forward into 2020, it's going to be very difficult for the people who are already on the fence but leaning to Trump because he hasn't been big and bad. He hasn't destroyed the economy. He hasn't appointed some pornographic prostitute as Secretary of State, even though that might have been an improvement of some of them. <laughs> and he hasn't started a new war. He hasn't taken jobs away. The jobs numbers are good. The problems with the American economy, which whilst many are systematic and due to a flawed monetary policy due to the Federal Reserve, not due to Trump per se. So, so long as Trump can keep things going and look presidential on the world stage, I think he's going to be very, very difficult for anyone to stop. Thanks, Philip. In New Jersey, let's take a quick break. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for the regular segment called Veterans for Peace, where we focus on the contemporary issues of war and peace that affect veterans, their families, the country, and the world as a whole. Veterans for Peace President Jerry Condon joins the show every Thursday. Hear about this and more every Thursday right here on Radio Sputnik. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway, the world is our classroom, and you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. Hashtag Ask Adam. Do you believe we'll ever see an end to identity politics, or will it only get worse? That's from Edmund Neurtier. Uh, I thought the apex, Nadir, was reached today when the Lake District was lectured uh, that even though it's rammed with tourists and can scarcely uh, uh, accept anymore, it must try harder on its lack of diversity. There are too many uh, old white people going on holiday and on trips to the Lake District, said the local tourism boss. That's identity politics gone mad, hasn't it? Oh, totally gone mad because he's actually, because people go to the Lake District for one reason only, to see the natural environment. So if the natural environment is repelling people on a racial basis... Not just racial, but everywhere. I mean, there are too many 
straight white men so in, got, the, in the in the lake district. So you've got a racist tree, a homophobic lake, <laughs> a, a xenophobic rolling hill of grass. I mean, it's totally ridiculous. I mean, what do they want? Should Prince Charles hire a, an architect to build a monstrous concrete carbuncle with a Burger King in it to make it more like London? I mean, come on. In rainbow colours. <laughs> of course. Let's hear from Hamid in London. Hamid, welcome. Hi. Good afternoon. I just wanted to say, you were talking earlier about China and the, the, how they treat the Muslims and extremism. But I, I live in London. I wanted to say, why the British government still allows Saudi Arabia, Qatar and other countries to fund mosques in the UK? Surely it should be made illegal the same way, because what they do, they, pre, they send imams here. Imams are only one of the categories where they still issue work visas. And they bring these guys over here and they preach this hate doctrine. And then <clears throat> you get radicalism. Why doesn't the government, it's very simple, they say we want to fight radicalism. Why don't they stop the funding of mosques by this, uh, you know, Wahhabi ideology which comes over from well, Saudi Arabia? Uh, uh, it's uh, probably a question of money. Uh, and I'll ask Adam in a minute. But my answer would be, uh, prefaced by this, Hamid, that the British government actually has never wanted to fight Islamist extremism. In fact, the British government's been in bed with Islamist extremism since the 1950s, since the uh, fostering of the uh, harboring of and the fostering of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt as a cat's paw for British policy. Uh, against uh, uh, Nasser, President Nasser, the greatest of all the Arab leaders. And Britain has harbored, as a matter of deliberate policy, Islamist extremism here in our own country. I give you uh, the most obvious example being uh, the uh, fighting Islamic group in uh, Libya, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, the clue being, as I always say, in the name. Uh, we fostered, harbored, helped, facilitated the Libyan Islamic fighting group. We harbored them in Manchester. One of their children blew up our children in the Manchester arena. Uh, and they did so as a matter of deliberate policy so that they could one day use this Libyan Islamic fighting group to destroy uh, the Gaddafi uh, regime in Libya. Adam. Well, I think that the caller makes a very important point. If you can't have a foreign regime funding a, a political party, why should they fund a religious institution or a religious sect or even a religious building? So I think if you went after this on the financial line saying, look, any donation over, let's say, £5,000 to a religious organisation from a foreign government or from a registered entity abroad, it needs to go through some very stringent checks. And I I think that that would hopefully be the beginning of, of getting local people to shape the kind of religion taught in religious schools of all denominations, religious institutions, houses of prayer of all denominations, because one doesn't want churches or mosques or any other religious institution to be surreptitious tools of foreign interference. If it's good enough for political parties, why, why not for religious institutions? Last word to you, Hamid. Yeah, I think it's true. And also, I wanted to say why, for example, uh, when something happens, you were talking about identity politics. 
why if it's a Muslim, they always have to mention the Muslim. You know, the taxi driver was Muslim, you know, when they had the thing in Rotterdam. But if, for example, Epstein or Weinstein or Philip Green or whatever, nobody mentions their religion. But if it's, if it's a Muslim, they always have to mention their religion. Why? Why if, for example, the, somebody is the first Muslim this or the first black this, when are we going to get past this identity thing? They, you know, you, uh, sorry to say, but I mean, the BBC says, oh, we are very unbiased. But they are the worst ones because they shove this down the throat of everybody. You know, the first Muslim mayor of London, the first black president of this. Surely if they are all the same, they shouldn't be putting these labels on people. Good point, Hamid. Thank you for that. Simon is also in London. Go ahead, Simon. How are you doing, George? You okay? Yes, good. Thanks. Thanks for Merry calling. Merry Christmas, by the way, to uh, you and to Adam. you also. Merry Thank Christmas. you. Yeah, and a Happy New Year as well, of course. Yeah. Cheers, um, yeah, despite everything that's happened in the last few weeks with regards to the Labour Party, the most disappointing and disturbing part of this is the fact that Corbyn could not defend his friends, no matter what happened, regardless of whether people were under the bus, uh, thrown under the bus, against ludicrous, ludicrous claims, false claims of anti-Semitism. He kept apologizing for absolutely no reason, when all he needed to tell right-wing journalists like Andrew Neil uh, was that Judaism is a fine, peaceful religion, and Jews are great people, but Zionism uh, is a poisonous, racist, right-wing political movement, which should be, and, uh, should be and should be open to scrutiny and criticism like any political movement. For me, the fact that he couldn't even make this simple differentiation shows to me that everything he's getting now, um, he kind of deserves. Now, even when this week, or last week I think it was, a gutless spineless jellyfish like Tony Blair came out and blamed Corbyn for racism, uh, uh, anti-Semitism, and uh, being so left-wing that he became unvotable, he didn't, he didn't defend himself. In fact, if anything, Theresa May's aide um, came out and defended, uh, defended Corbyn, which is extraordinary, I find, you know, um, which kind of leads me to a question, George. Has Corbyn actually thrown this selection deliberately? No, not at all, uh, but his, uh, his uh, character defects are uh, displayed by the kind of uh, failures that you identify. The very same characteristics that got him the nomination as Labour leader in the first place. You see, nobody else except Jeremy Corbyn could have got the then necessary 40 nominations. Uh, no other person on the left could have got that. I certainly couldn't have got that. Uh, John McDonnell couldn't have got it. No one else but Jeremy Corbyn could have got it. And he got it because he was universally regarded as a weak and nice and harmless character. And so people lent him their vote that had nothing in common with his political views, and they openly admitted uh, afterwards that they then felt extremely foolish because he had gone on to win the contest. Uh, uh, the uh, one in, in particular, the former uh, deputy uh, leader of the uh, Labour Party, she described herself as a moron for having uh, done so. She did so because of the very characteristics that make up Jeremy Corbyn, uh, which later made him unable, unwilling, you could argue which, uh, to stand up against the onslaught and stand up for his friends. Uh, and uh, the Ma Margaret Beckett 
was not the only one. There were many others. David Lammy uh, nominated uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Emily Thornberry uh, nominated Jeremy Corbyn because none of them... Uh, uh, Sadiq Khan nominated uh, Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> none of them imagined that he could win. And they could only do what they did because of the very characteristics that then played out in real time over four years that made Corbyn's leadership in the end a failure. Simon, thanks for the call. Uh, Bob is in Maryland in the US. Got a question for Adam. Bob, go ahead. Yes, thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to ask, I've run across recently the notion of the militarization of space and the thinking was that a, a country, a very powerful country, could put a platform in place with a nuclear weapon and position it over a country and ask or demand their cooperation. My, the basis or the root of the question is the cavalier manner, and I'm using that in quotes, in which nuclear weapons are spoken about. On Earth, they're just totally devastating, but the idea of having a platform over a country, and could he speak to that in just the way that, again, this nuclearization is spoken about? Such a good or question, not uh, Bob. Thank you uh, very much for that. It's uh, almost sacrilegious, isn't it, weaponizing the heavens? Well, yes, um, even though I'd rather bomb the moon than bomb Earth, because unlike certain conspiratorial radio shows, I don't think there's anything on there. But getting to the serious point... Not even Elvis? <laughs> Posse's there eating the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> In an alternative universe where Hillary is president of the moon, winning yeah. both the popular and electoral vote. But uh, getting to, to the serious point, there's already enough nuclear weapons on the planet to destroy the entire planet several times over. So this whole weaponizing of space, it's sort of the space race 2.0. It's about challenging your opponent to see how much money they can spend, trying to find out how much technology that they have, but maybe haven't been flashing out in the open through these provocations. Because in the, the main nuclear powers can destroy any country in the world through ICBMs that are launched from Earth. So the entire thing, it's, it's a bit of a dangerous vanity project, but I don't think it's materially going to change anything. If, a, if one of the main countries wants to destroy another one, they're more than capable of doing it. Thanks for that, Bob. Uh, Robert is in Florida. Go ahead, Robert. Hi. Hi, George. Hi. Hi, Adam. Hi there. Okay, so you're talking about Bernie Sanders, and I, I shudder at the thought of a Bernie Sanders presidency. In fact, I shudder at the thought of any of these people becoming president. <laughs> My real opinion is no more presidents. How about that? I mean, what, what are they really good for? They're really not serving the interests of the American people. It's all about foreign policy. But my point about Sanders is, is socialism and communism. There's already incredible money printing happening here in the United States. I'm not hearing any specifics from Sanders. I'm not hearing any specifics from anyone about anything. And the media has everything to do with this as, as well. So there's so much... I don't get what Sanders, what everybody would want up in Sanders, because essentially, I mean, what is communism? And disagree me, agree with me if you wish, but the state sets your value as a person. Right? Adam, this uh, is up uh, up your street, I think. 
Yes, well, I was talking about the systematic problems with the American economy earlier, and the caller talked about the printing of money. Well, the so-called left likes tax and spend, and the so-called right likes borrow and spend. They can all agree on print and spend, and it's going to destroy America because the dollar is still the international reserve currency. Why? I don't know. I mean, I do, and I don't. If you get my drift, but that is going to be the cause of the next depression or the next recession, because lo and behold, monetary irresponsibility, government and central planners in. Interfering with monetary policy has been the cause of every great modern depression on Earth, and just about every depression even before the modern era. So I agree. When it comes to the monetary policy, you can't put a cigarette paper between any of them because they all think that printing money is somehow good when it represents literally a theft from the most economically vulnerable, and in the longer sense, it represents building a house of cards. That will fall on the backs of all of the people. So I agree. When it comes to the macroeconomic issues, which are centered on monetary policy, there's a disaster waiting to happen, no matter who's in charge. Thanks for that, Robert. Jamal is in <coughs> Virginia. Let's hear from him. Jamal. Jamal, are you there? We've lost him. Okay, let me deal with some of the written ones because there's lots of them. Uh, Ask Adam, which politicians, pundits, and writers have most shaped your views? Living, dead, current.、Uh, well, I suppose he didn't specify. No. Inter. Well, I. And we're short of time, so. Right. Okay. So my favourite British politicians. Benjamin Disraeli, the third Marquess of Salisbury, Joseph Chamberlain,、uh, my favourite international politicians:、uh, Deng Xiaoping,、uh, Otto von Bismarck, and Robert Taft from the U.S.、Um, and in terms of my favourite thinkers, I suppose Nietzsche, Freud, and Spengler. Well, that's a quick and comprehensive uh, uh, answer. Chris Strange says, "What do you think David Lammy's chances of being elected Labour leader are?" I'm seeing a needle go through the eye of the camel, and then the camel's laughing at the chances of David Lammy getting through. <laughs> I think that's right. Jamal's back on the line. Go ahead, Jamal. Jamal, are you there? No, we still don't have him.、Uh, be a voice for the voiceless. Ask Adam. Should faith schools be banned? No, of course not. That would be. We talked about communism. That's one of the things I hate most about communism. I think that banning faith schools would be absurd. The flat earther asks. I wish to ask Adam how much of an economic boost can we expect to the economy in terms of trade, GDP, jobs, etc., when Britain signs free trade deals with the USA, Canada, Australia, China, South Korea, Japan, etc., and do you think the EU will refuse? To sign a free trade agreement with、uh, Brexit Britain. I'll answer quickly because I can. I think that the trade deals are going to be one of the best things, if not the best thing, to happen to the British economy since the early 90s. And <coughs> as for the second question, I think that the shareholders at places like Siemens, VW,、uh, uh, Mercedes-Benz—they're already shaking in their clogs. So I've realised there's a Dutch, but yeah, there's going to be a trade deal. Michael Gon. Not Michael Gove. No, gone. <laughs> Michael Gove is listening, but not phoning.、Uh, George, what's the gripe with Jess Phillips? She may not be leadership material, but she speaks from the heart 
and usually makes sense. Michael, are you in <laughs> Ward 5, Broadmoor? She speaks from the heart and usually makes sense. She's the most fake working class brummy, <laughs> my backside, that I have ever met and usually makes sense. I've never known a parliamentarian to make less sense. Your view. There's a taverna somewhere in Athens missing its Aristotle impersonator. <laughs> uh, no, J Jess Phillips is... Uh, she's, she's something other than else to put on, you know, a Star Trek voice. I just, she's incompetent, she's incapable, she's irritating, and those are just her good bits. <laughs> <laughs> Chrissy says Trump has stated three times on camera that he hopes Biden will win the nomination. Why do you think that is? Because Biden will be a complete pushover and the world will suffer four more years of Trump. Of course, Chrissy, that could be a double bluff. You know what I'm saying. Now, our sound desk has been hacked. Having seen off the, uh, the cyber attacks two weeks running, uh, Moscow's defences uh, were uh, so robust by week three that we repelled all borders. But now our sound desk has literally been Hacked. So a uh, big apologies to Norma, the legend, and Jamal, who won't be able to get on. And I'm sorry to say we won't be able to take any more calls this week. But don't worry, Moscow will move with alacrity and great uh, might uh, to quash this latest uh, attack on the mother of all talk shows, I'm perfectly sure. Zachariah says... Uh, America is not a place to be afraid like that. Y'all are ignorant and must never have walked the streets of this country. Like every other country, there are problem areas. And Bob Chanel says, we don't have a left in the US. The Democrats have moved to the right of what was once considered moderate Republican positions. And uh, here's an interesting one from James. If England had an independence vote, what would the result be? What do you think? Oh, it would be a, a total damp squib. It would be... It would just be totally silly. Uh, there, there's actually a party called the English Democrats... Yeah, they don't leader, get far, no. Their leader is famous for trying to say Brexit had already happened, which was an admirable case, but no, there's not going to be an English independence. <laughs> independence from what? It, it, it's just silly. It's just silly. Uh, Kevin Tuey, uh, without national healthcare systems, health getting poor and life expectancy declining for the average American. And Patrick says, what do you make of the Catholic social justice-influenced American Solidarity Party? And do you feel that a Chestertonian-influenced political party is viable in Yankee land? It's above my pay grade. Do you want to have a stab at that? Well, I've never heard of the party, but if we're going to talk about morality in politics, there was actually a story I read just a few hours ago that I think summarizes the last 10 years of at least Western history. In the MOD, which for our international viewers or for people who watch Channel 4, is the Ministry of Defense, they've built what they call gender-neutral lavatories, which means the men and women in the same place. Of course, my headline was MOD, female MOD employees don't like the sound of 
of the men dropping bombs next door, but that didn't make uh, the papers. But what that showed me metaphorically is that you can't change human nature. You can say that you want to have a breakdown of all these gender barriers and that it's sexist and the rest of it to say that you're opposed to men and women excreting their various fluids and sometimes solids next to each other. But as someone who's met men and met women, uh, throughout most of my life, I know one thing if I know anything. Women do not want to be anywhere near a man using lavatorial facilities. Um, you can't change human nature, but I actually am quite pleased that they did this at the MOD, because if they could get this experiment to work, there would be world peace, <laughs> if they could convince the women to sit next to the men dropping their bombs in the, in the loo, but it's not going to happen. Mabuhe from the Philippines. Happy New Year to George, Adam, and the rest of the Moats family. That's from LCSIAO. And Peter, uh, talking about Tarek Haddad, an educated journalist, species yes. rare. Alison Mason says, hi from Greece. Greece's public health service is also being sold off under EU diktat. Abdul Wahab Qasim Ibrahim, Happy New Year to all viewers. Uh, Roger Manifold says the truth is a diminishing commodity that thankfully this program provides an antidote to. And Jack Lakeland says, I don't think Trump blames Muslims and Mexicans. He blames those who have managed migration so badly in the past. He didn't say all Mexicans are rapists. He said the Mexican government was allowing them to cross the border. He didn't have a Muslim ban. It was his predecessors. And Pseudo Switch says, please screen the callers for sub 100 IQs. Not at all. I think the IQ uh, quotient on this program is second to none. In fact, I don't know of any program over three hours on politics and current affairs anywhere in the world that matches this program for the quality of those talking to you from this side of the camera and the quality of those making calls from New Zealand, from South Carolina, from uh, all over uh, the world, people are listening and contributing uh, to this show. I'm sorry about the hacking of our sound desk. We really will have to attend to that. Uh, but it's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, then come back next week at the same time in the same place and bring another viewer and listener with you because I'm determined that we get to this number one million uh, before very much longer. Wishing you all a very happy new year.